This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Sharon and Eric Lopez. Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez with you here. Uh, lots to talk about on this. Uh, we're recording this Wednesday, October the 6th. We are in full swing. We've got, uh, and it is a busy weekend coming up in the kingdom. We've got back home conference opener against ECU. We've got UCF Hall of Fame taking place. We've got uh, the hoop schedules came out this week. Bryson Turner is going to talk with us about what's going on with soccer, volleyball, and everything in a little bit. But, uh, but first, let's talk football because that is the most important thing that we have going on right now where UCF finds themselves in a... Well, an interesting spot. And, uh, and, and Drew Glukov, Stat Boy Drew, joins us here to talk football. Of course, you can follow him at Stat Boy Drew on Twitter. Drew, what's going on? Hey, guys. How's it going on this wonderful Wednesday afternoon? I don't know, man. You tell us. UCF's lost their last two uh, on the road, okay? Lost the conference opener to Navy in um, heartbreaking fashion. Was up, two, was up two possessions in the fourth. And then Navy just kind of did Navy things. One key turnover, really good drive it by UCF at the end of the game, but they they had a goal to go situation. Well, they didn't have a goal to go situation, but because they could have gotten a first down. But um, even I, I thought that you know just to wrap real quick because what hasn't been already said about this Navy game in Annapolis, I thought that Mikey Keene was great. I thought the game plan for him was solid and well executed. It's just that last you know obviously the breakdown late in the game with the turnover um you know i was scared to death and i told matt Loudermilk on twitter this i was he's like what's your biggest he just threw out the question what's your biggest fear about this game and i wrote that navy turns into navy and navy turned into navy in this game and granted we had a shot to win it at the end but you know that that people keep going back to that last four downs um but I mean, that really wasn't what decided the game. But that that one hurt, Drew. You you were you were watching. I mean, I, I don't think it's as bad as people think. I think Navy's actually a better team than they look. They just got off to a bad start. But um, you know, it, overall, it's like it, I don't know. Is it is this was this loss as bad as people are thinking? Well, I mean, Navy had to figure themselves out and. <laughs> Going against a team that has trouble containing the outside was a perfect remedy. Uh, and, and let's think, <laughs> let's think about this, you know, UCF coming in, missing a linebacker, missing uh, top guys on offense, yep. you know, even after three, the bye week, they had a lot know, of guys, all out. three skill positions were missing their number one guy. I mean, the recipe was set for Navy to kind of write the ship, no pun intended. And <laughs> I'm not going to give you credit for that one. Sorry. I've, Don't, I've, carry I've, on. I, hence the no pun intended. Uh, and, the, and, and, you know, Navy did Navy things. And what happened in the fourth quarter is indicative of what this offense is meant to do. It's, it's a running offense. It's meant to wear you down. And for a team that lacks depth on the defensive side of the ball, they, they eventually just started getting beaten down. They were outscored 17, nothing in the fourth quarter, which is, you know, what you want out of a running team. The key That's is, what Navy does. What Navy does keep the game yep. close enough that you can, you know, wear them down and then bring yourself back mm-hmm. and on offense you know everyone say oh mikey Keene's great mikey Keene. he had a good game uh there are issues that he has to work on uh th- this was not a 
perfect game oh, by yeah. any well, stretch of the imagination. Yeah. He's also a true freshman. <laughs> a true I mean, freshman, first and, start. First start. I, I thought he was – forgive me for interrupting. I just want to get his stats out there for everyone because I think people forget the 16 to 26, 178, two touchdowns, one pick. Also ran uh, well. He went three net yards rushing, but you know, and that pick was at the end. Was, the pick, was yeah, the pick was at the end of the game. It, yeah. it was the last play of the game, basically. Uh, you know, as a true freshman, and, and some people complained about the game plan. The game plan was for him to be as much of a game manager as possible, to not have to put everything on his shoulders. Because if you take away the first three passes and the final drive, he didn't actually do much. Right. Um, most, uh, you know, didn't have many completions, didn't get many yards, a lot but of executed what he was asked to do. I thought really well, I, I think he had the part that I enjoyed watching the most wasn't, uh, you know, the yarder thing. It was the progressions. He made his progressions. He hit a lot of check downs. Uh, Navy's defense was just doing a pretty good job of keeping UCF's receivers in check. Jalen Robinson was out that really hurt. And uh, I, I think he did a good job of, of kind of going through those progressions. That, that is something that is harder to teach, especially for a true freshman. Uh, the, the rest of it is, is just the, de- you know, the unnecessary details that the guy didn't get open. Okay, he passed to a different guy. Good, yeah. things work. Uh, the thing he has to work on is touch. Uh, right now, I mean, he rifled the ball a lot, and it caused a number of incompletions that shouldn't have been. He showed uh, some touch a couple of times on those touchdown passes, though. I thought that one to Brandon jo- uh, Johnson. Uh, well, up he on threaded the-, the needle on that one. Whew, that was a throw, baby. Holy that smokes. Was- and he showed signs in the Bethune-Cookman game of being able to hit those really hard precision passes where you have a low percentage chance of error. Uh, but the the, the passes to, to Alec Holler, um, the the two that were dropped, one was behind Holler. The other one was was just thrown too hard. I mean, that, that was a hard one to bring in. And I, you know, I've always been a... Uh, a guy in the thought process of if it hits your hands, you should catch it. But even I was like, wow, that was a, that was a, a rifle shot. So, I mean, that's part of the experience process. That's, that's why the expectation this year is, is not so much win the conference title, but, but development. I, you don't want to call it a rebuilding year. Cause it's not rebuilding. It's a year. rebuild year now. It's a it's, rebuild year now. It's, <laughs> it's a development year. Cause you know, I agree with Drew on this rebuild development's the same thing. I mean, not we can speak, really. We no. could it, we could spin it how we want, but it's a rebuild slash developmental transitional I, I, year. I disagree with that, and I'll tell you why. When I hear rebuild, I think the whole thing has crumbled, and you have to build it up piece by piece. Oh, I the don't agree thing, with there's, that. There's a lot of talent that's already on that roster. You just have to develop it. That's that's how I view it. I don't know. Well, if this is I don't this know is a very agree. talented I, team. This oh, is a I very dis- talented. I oh, I disagree with both of you. I don't think this is a very talented. In fact, I think this is the least talented UCF roster in a while. And and I'm not, and when I well, say maybe that in the, maybe in the upperclassmen, especially. Yes. On yes that's what I mean. That's especially what I mean. Yes. Yes, uh, yes. This offensive line is incredibly solid, but it's senior laden. Uh, the offensive side is, is, is pretty good. Uh, you know, you, you, you're missing a little bit in the running backs in the lower side, cause you just don't have size. And as a result, no one respects the running game when Isaiah Bowser is not on Correct. the field. And that's, that's what true. happened. Hey, that's such against a huge Navy. loss. Golly. Uh, yeah, I think that was probably the biggest X factor. Isn't Dylan Gabriel being out? It's Isaiah Bowser being out because it redefines the entire offense. Yeah. Uh, you know, you he's can, their best but, pass blocker, too, from the backfield. Best, well, I mean, I mean, he's, he's a Mack truck. I mean, he's correct. What, 215 pounds. I mean, he's, he's a beast. 
and and you can't replicate that and you know when when he was on the field against louisville they they crashed the the, the box you know much more uh against uh, navy they you know maybe didn't respect the run at all and and eventually they were throwing many guys in the defensive back gun. I remember Coach Malzahn saying at one point they had like eight guys dropping back because they knew they were going to throw it. No one respected the run. So I mean Bowser, uh, that that hurts. But I mean he was kind of a, a diamond in the fact that they were able to get him through the transfer portal. They got to work on developing someone else. I remember uh, at one point it was going to be Bentavious Thompson before he got hurt in the off season, lost yeah. a lot of weight and really lost that ability to be a, a bruiser back before he left the team. So uh, you see, uh, Trill- Trillian Coles is kind of that, but Trillian I mean, they Coles ran him seven, like, what five, seven, five, eight. I yeah, mean, and they ran played, him seven times for 24 yards. That's a 3.1 average, which isn't bad, but it's, it's but it's not it, that that's not what you need. Yeah. Uh, you, you need between four and five to really, to really make it work. Right. Uh, but I, and, and, and Johnny lot. Richardson, to his credit, he had 59 yards on 11 carries, 5.4 average. There's your five point, you know, the five average that you're looking for. But the one thing UCF's running game lacks without Bowser is consistency. Uh, you know, in the case of Richardson, he'd break a few 10 plus yard runs that would pad those stats a little bit. And then he would run one, zero, minus one. Uh, Feels a lot like last year's run game. Uh, I would say worse. Uh, you know, at least last year you had. You know, you had, you know, guys who were a little more consistent. Uh, it, it, they didn't perform how they did in 2019. Yeah. But, I mean, you had you had a much better stable of running backs as from, a, from a size and all-around sta- standpoint. I mean, uh, a, a little scat back should not be your number one guy. Uh, that that hurts. You, you need you – need, some sort of thunder to go with it. And, and UCF lacks that without, without Bowser, but you can get away with a team that only has thunder. You know, you don't have to have a lightning back. Yeah. Uh, so I'm that, that put more pressure on, on Keen, which of course affected the game. Great, great start. Uh, I've always been a fan of his. He needs work. This is how you learn it. Um, however, defense and special teams were unmitigated messes. Yeah. Why you reasons. brought up, I'm glad you brought up special teams. Yeah. We I want to ask you about play. the special teams, Eric, yeah. because it, this is kind of, you know, UCFO going back to George O'Leary has actually been very good on the special teams, but we're seeing like, you know, it, it's, it does seem like we're kind of seeing a, a downslope a little bit here. And those two mistakes on special teams were, were catastrophic. catastrophic. Yeah. Jinx. Well, that's another, I mean, <laughs> we can nitpick whatever defensive issues they have. If you think about it, if, and I said this on the night shift post game with Drew and Bryson. If the special teams was just an average team on Saturday, they win the game. That's how bad they were. You have a punt block for a touchdown, which to me was the, ter- the the difference in the game. I thought UCF had a chance to to grab that game by the throat. They were up twenty to ten at the time. They had the ball. I'm thinking if they could score here, go up three scores. This game's a wrap. Instead, they go through. You know, they don't. Then they have the punt block for the touchdown. Turn the whole game around. Uh, really kept Navy in the game. You miss an extra point. That's another point you cost yourself. And then the 19-yard punt, when you're up 10 in the fourth quarter, you basically are handing Navy the touchdown. And the thing about Navy is 
If you keep them in the game, it allows them to run their system and run their stuff throughout the game and to wear you down. That's the problem. UCF never was able to go up three scores because of their special teams. They had this game, and you basically, if you do the math, that's basically 15 points the special teams cost you. You gave up two touchdowns to Navy on special teams, and you missed an extra point. So to me – that's what lost them the game. We can nitpick defensive issues. We know that. But at the end of the day, in my opinion, the defense really only gave up 20 points. The special teams cost them 15. The offense was good enough. You And you know this, Jeff, as a longtime Giants fan. What is Bill, Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick, who's now with the pay? We always tell you about special teams. How many games of the great Giant teams always win on special teams? They always want uh, the, the great Giant, great Giant teams. And this go, you, you could say this about it anyway. Great Giant teams were ironclad. On special teams. And that's Iron, uh, spe- yeah. special teams was a weapon. Yeah. And that's not the case here. So uh, it's the complete right. opposite here. So that's, we can pick the defense and the offense and this and that. I mean, I was li- watching people saying that Mikey Key should have thrown the ball more. I disagree with that. He was fine. Yeah, uh, he was fine. Yeah, would, no, he should have thrown the ball more. The special he teams. the exact be- amount of times he should have thrown. Correct. That's it. Uh, but the special teams an issue. And that's a big issue because here's the thing. This team has very little room for error, especially without Dylan Gabriel. See, when you have a quarterback like Dylan Gabriel, this is nothing against Mikey Keene. He's just literally just made his first start. He was in high school a year ago, basically. I mean, yeah. you know. He was a high schooler in Chandler, Arizona. Yeah. When you have a guy like Dylan Gabriel, it you can hide a lot of your flaws. But now you don't have that. So, for example, this week's game against East Carolina – which you would have been a heavy favorite with a Dylan Gaber with the segue, by the way. Thank you. That's, I've done this. Before. And they're still heavily favored. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm very yeah. confused by the Vegas line here. Tells you how much they think of ECU, but here's the problem. Right. Yeah. Here's my concern. Moving forward. In my opinion, East Carolina has the better quarterback in this game. Cincinnati definitely has the better quarterback in this game. Other teams moving forward in the schedule now either are even or will have an edge at the quarterback, which means your room for air is very thin, very thin. Add to the injuries to a Bowser, to a Jalen Robinson, which we don't know when they're going to come back. I mean, it's going to be tough here moving forward. Yeah, and that was uh, uh, sorry, quick, Jeff. That was actually something that that I, I posted about numerous times, and we've talked about is the fact that the defense was always masked by how strong the offense was, you know, the offense just put up points and made it up for the fact that defense, uh, you know, struggled at times. Well, now you don't have that. And, yeah. you know, uh, there was a, a Twitter poll, you know, what are you more concerned about the offense and defense? And I made a case about the offense for that reason, because the defense hasn't changed. It's, it wasn't great. Now it wasn't great then, and it won't be great tomorrow. It's not going to yeah. change, but the offense that they relied on to, to cover for that is gone. Uh, he, and, and I don't I mean that in a negative way towards Mikey Keene, but as you said, you just don't replace Dylan Gabriel overnight, you know, especially with a true freshman. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you gotta, you gotta, you know, start somewhere and, and build that up. But I mean, defensive depth is a problem. And, and it has been a problem. And that's where Navy was able to just beat him down the fourth quarter. Depth is an issue. It was an issue last year. You know, when you had the, the players, you know, opt out and then the tra- uh, the guys who got dismissed from the team, uh, depth was an issue. Depth is still an issue. This is, uh, they were basically re, and this is where the rebuilding comes in. They're rebuilding 
the defense from the ground up and they had to bring in some transfers to kind of cover for it. But when your best guys on the defense are transfers, like, you know, one year, that was your giveaway, right? Shows yes. That That's you have giveaway. a problem. Yeah. Um, uh, so they're basically, and a lot of people are giving, you know, T will uh, a hard time, but you can't win the Kentucky Derby with the donkey. You, you, you need, you need thoroughbreds. You, you, and you, you got to get the right guys for the system. You know, Randy Shannon ran a nickel defense. You're now at more of a closer to a traditional four, three with a little bit of, of a flair to it. And, and you need to, to, to get the right guys. You need to get talent. So I expect a lot more guys coming from the transfer portal over the next year, as they try to build up those younger class. Cause you know, we always say, give a coach three years. This is why you give a coach three years. Late breaking news. It's not getting any easier. Um, Air, uh, this is from 247. Jason Beatty also reported this from Orlando Sentinel. Um, Eric Gilliard, has, the senior linebacker, has entered his name in the transfer portal. Ooh, and he uh, – and, well, and he's having – he's a starter. He's, he's played uh, he's all four games. He's got 23 tackles, half a tackle for loss. Uh, no sacks, no picks this year, but uh, he was a work, he's a workhorse in the middle of that. Uh, this is this I'm is mind blowing to me. Four star guy who came in um, immediately contributed. I know he and this is this is a Tatum shocker. Bethune were fighting for playing time. Yeah. So I, and T- Tatum, listen, Tatum's been great this year. Right? He really he really has. And I'm pulling up his numbers right now. He's he's played in uh, three games. He's got yeah, he fifteen total tack. Yeah, he missed the last one, and he was a big loss too. To be honest with you, I think he would have been a real help against uh, against that triple O. Uh, one tackle for loss, one pick this year, uh, which was against Bethune. But um, I, I guess, I, I, would you say, Drew, that the end result of this is that is that Tatum won the job and Eric wants to go somewhere else to get PT or what? Well, uh, I mean, Eric actually has, have, if you compare singular games, I think Eric did a better job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tatum missed a lot of tackles and he actually called himself out on it. Yeah, uh, that he's had some tackling issues this year. So credit I, to him for recognizing it. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I I give I give a lot of kudos for guys who are willing to to admit their own mistakes, especially on those fundamental ones. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I'm a little surprised at this because while Bethune's hurt, Gilliard has an opportunity to to shine. I mean, he yeah, all the linebackers are being overshadowed by. Uh, Bryson Armstrong, who's finally doing what he was brought here to do, which is be a tackle machine. Yeah, that dude is all over the place. Oh, uh, cool. best best guy in the defense by far, not even close. And I can yeah. see why he was uh, multi-time Big South Player of the Year on defense. And this guy is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so spinning it forward to ECU, and I want to set the stage here for this. ECU is three and two this year. They lost their first two to App State and South Carolina. They won three in a row at Marshall home Charleston Southern, and last week, 52-29 against Tulane in their conference opener. Holt Nailers is back for the 10th year in a row. Um, he's last week he threw uh, – <laughs> Only 10? I feel like it's longer than that. <laughs> he, uh, last week he was 21-32 for 288, two touchdowns, no picks. Um, so far this year uh, of uh, 59%, which is down from last year slightly, 1,266 yards, seven touchdowns, five picks. Uh, two of them were against uh, South Carolina. Another two in the win against Charleston Southern, which was kind of weird. Um, officially, by the way, he's listed as a junior. 
<laughs> well, they all got the extra more. Um, and uh, and here's the story. Like you were saying, Drew, UCF is favored by ten right now, according to Odd Shark. Fifty six, only fifty six percent of the money is on UCF minus the ten. Uh, over under six. Let's get this. Over under sixty seven and a half. A hundred percent of the money is on the under. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I would uh, go with the under on that. And uh, interestingly, the, the line started at nine and a half and went up to ten. I think at one point it was at eleven. Some places had it at eleven. Some places had it at eleven. I don't see it here, but um, the, uh, well, let me see the line history here. Well, here's the can... thing: East Carolina is one of the weirder teams. They are a, they are a team that could be down twenty-one nothing in one quarter, and they could outscore you twenty-eight to nothing the next quarter. They are very up and down. That's a very challenging schedule they played Appalachian State who's pretty good South Carolina they played very well against uh Marshall they came from behind in the fourth quarter to win Mm -hmm. there but they're averaging 32 points a game Ehlers Ehlers has literally faced every UCF quarterback I feel like over the last couple of years I think since right no he never faced Mackenzie Milton remember that was the game Milton missed that we all found out at the same time who started that game was that Mac it was Mac that was Mac yeah that was Daryl Mac's first start yeah Mac I think Quadri Jones threw a game a throw in that game he did uh, you had Quadri, Dylan, jo- Quadri Jones quarterback rating, I think was infinity after that night. Yeah. It was a weird <laughs> was game at 18. Uh, no, they didn't even know who he was on the TV broadcast. Like who is that guy? Yeah. Yeah. But look, Mike, he's dressed up as a receiver. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Anyway, go yeah. ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. No, I mean, Mike Houston's their head coach. He's been there now a few couple seats. They've been trying to build this up. Uh, they've been, they've shown they could move the football on UCF. I mean, they've moved the football on them the last couple of years. They just haven't been able to stop UCF. Well, now we'll see if UCF's not at a, a full strength offensively. We'll see what ECU can do. I, I would say this that from a, uh, you mentioned the point spread. I would stay away from all of that because I think, no, I mean, seriously, this is an unpredictable. I, I you, think that's a wise move. <laughs> because I agree with you, Drew. I feel like that in my gut says that's too high. But Vegas usually knows more than we do, so there's something they know. And I don't know what that is, but they know something. Uh, So I would stay away because, really, you could tell me any prediction in this game, and I would believe it. You could tell me UCF comes out and plays great, and they have a great crowd in the home field, and they win. You could also tell me that Holton Aylers just dominates and East Carolina wins, and I would believe that, too. That's that's where we're at right now. We're at this point where each game, you just have to focus on that game. It's a toss-up game moving forward. There are no gimmies except UConn because they're UConn. Uh, but, hey, that UConn-UMass game, that should have been game day. I mean, that that is an epic Game. I know. How can they pick the Red River? Um, <laughs> How can they pick that over the conflict, man? Unbelievable. What but no, I, I I will say like, and I we had Chris Vanini on before the season. He said East Carolina was a sleeper team in the league. They could be a team that spoils a lot of team seasons. And one of the things that stands out to me this week, the league announced that Cincinnati and East Carolina has been moved to Black Friday, and I think that's a game that people. If Cincinnati better be careful about that's, that, that's, that's an interesting matchup when you yeah. really think about it. If ECU, yeah. if ECU is the ECU that Chris thought, yeah, that's a real dangerous game for, for the Bearcats. Yeah. Now, yeah. where's that game being played? Greenville. It's at East Carolina. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Okay. And now it's going to be on Black Friday. It might be the uh, ABC game. But yeah, by the way, our time slot for that Black Friday game against USF is not going to be good. But anyway, whatever. whatever. We'll do well, it. They said it was supposed to be either 3.30 or 7. Or 3.30 yeah. or 7.30. But it's it's not going to be ABC. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be Well, you never it's know. Like, you never know. It's going to be like anyway. ESPN+. 
but but this is the thing is obviously this defense is going to have to try to slow down Holton Ehlers, right? That's the whole key here. Holton Ehlers, as he goes, goes this offense. And they've started to build guys around him. So to me, it's strange as this sounds. I don't know. You can tell me I'm wrong, Drew. I don't think UCF wants to get into a shootout here with East Carolina. No, not at all. Uh, Holton Ehlers is a gunslinger. He can throw for many touchdowns. He can also throw for many interceptions. Uh, you know, that's the Brett Favre effect. Yeah, no, it's uh, fair. That, that's, Holton that's a Ehlers good comparison, actually. The guy I'm actually most concerned about is Keaton Mitchell, their second-year freshman running back. And he's, he's, just, good. he's been on fire. Uh, you know, four out of the five games they played, he's averaged over nine yards a carry. And uh, four uh, – Four games, he's had double-digit carries. Uh, let, let's look at this. Uh, Appalachian State was four for 50. Uh, okay. South Carolina, 14 for 42. That was the bad game. Marshall, 14 for 135. 9.6 average. What was his Charles- long? Uh, I don't have his long. Uh, Charleston Southern, 13 for 125. Similar average. Tulane, 15 for 222 yards. That's almost a 15-yard per carry average. I mean, just – with two, you know, and he scored touchdowns in each of his last three games. I mean, that's a guy I'm worried about because that's called that's a big play threat. Well, and he's he bring, provides balance for their offense, and he's you're right, he's a playmaker. Now, Drew, before we wrap on ECU, because obviously we know that this is going to be, you know, this this is a big game. I mean, I think what did he see in the game though? So I saw this that is a UCF season could, reset for UCF. This yeah, is this a season is season reset. It's like kind of like if, you know, if seven UCF loses, all right. A win, this is according to the game notes that just came out, a win would make sure the Knights do not fall below 500 for the first time since the last game of 2016 when UCF lost in the bowl game to Terry Mohajer's Arkansas State Red Wolves. Um, the uh, season, the all-time series, by the way, ECU still leads it 10-9. to 9. Right. And now I believe UCF's won the last five in a row? Won the last five. Won the last five. So, um. Injury updates. Do we know anything about Jalen Robinson? Do we know anything about Isaiah Bowser? Do we know anything about even how Dylan Gabriel's recovery is going? Uh, I haven't heard anything other than the fact that it's week to week with um, the first two. Uh, Obviously. uh, Now, is is that like, do you feel like that's like Gus playing it close to the vest, like week to week? And then all of a sudden one of them is going to show up or is it like, oh, week to week? And you're like, I don't know, man. Well, it's it's yeah. more of, okay, how are you feeling? You know, it's Thursday. You know, how are you feeling? Okay, you're good. You're not good. And you go from there. And, uh, they had that about Matt Lee the prior week. Uh, not for mm-hmm. not for uh, Navy, but for Louisville. They had him in the same classification. He dressed up. He tried to go. Did not work. Right. So, I mean, it, it's basically a coin flip at this point. Uh, but I mean, the, the general feeling is it's not good, but they're at least playing it close enough to the best. Obviously, uh, Gabriel's injuries, you know, no less than six weeks, you know, on a, on a broken clavicle. Um, but they're saying indefinite. Dang. I, I mean, it just, it they, you it know, some, some years it's like some, some, some years the bear gets you and you got to figure out a way through it. And yeah, yeah and my hope, as we wrap this segment up, because we're going to take a break here in a segment, my hope is that, you know, all the toxicity that we've seen on social, and I've seen it, man, it, this has been the worst oh. year, I think, on Twitter. And I think oh, I man, this, never is, this has been horrible. Absolutely and, horrible. And Facebook, too. But I, I will say this, is that this is, 
and I said this before, but I really do believe it. This is the time when I think the fan base really needs to rally around these guys and pick them up when they're down because there's going to be struggles. I mean, there just are. We're seeing it right now, okay, in a transitional year. And you just got to you got to stick with them. You got to pick them up, pat them on the – this is where the fans really need to pick them up, pat them on the back, and be like, it's all right. We got your back. Don't worry about it. Just keep fighting. Just keep fighting and you'll get there. All right. And when you're there, we'll be, you know, <laughs> what's, what's the meme. It's like, if you didn't love me at your, this don't love me at your that or whatever. I it was know. usually, if you didn't love us at one and 15, don't, you can't love us at two and 14. <laughs> <laughs> says, says the Cleveland Browns fan in the room. Well, so. I was there in front the Jacksonville Jaguars, but I mean, <laughs> but like, it's not that bad, but it's like, I, 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 this team really needs the fan base to step up and be in their corner. There's a um, line, hell or high water. Now there's the a time. line between being critiquing the team or critiquing players and being hostile. There's a, there's a, there's a difference. You can, you can objectively critique. Well, that's what we're doing today is we're, we're critiquing, but we're not, we're not being hostile and attacking players. You know, Hey, you suck. No, we're, we're not. We're, yeah. But there are people who are attacking players directly on social media. Mm -hmm. The time for that is never. And the place is no place. There's no situation that justifies attacking players, attacking players, parents, because they see what you write. And And I would uh, say unfairly attacking the coaches too. I don't know. Yeah. And I get, I I get the way you say like, you know, they're the ones who make the big bucks, right? They're the ones that are meant, if you're going to attack someone, you attack the coaches. You know, I'm a man, I'm 40. Come on. Mike Gundy said it great. Um, (laughs) And uh, I don't know if Mike Gundy is the proper example to throw out there for, you know, well, I mean, I'm just saying, but he, he's the one who said, Gundy. Okay. I I got a tribute to him. He's the one who said, but they're making the big bucks. They're the ones that that's part of the job is, is facing the crowd. I I get, I get what you're saying. These are kids. They're, they're, They're part of their job description is, is fielding the flack. Yeah, these are kids. They're trying. They're learning. Uh, they're going to make mistakes. They're human. Uh, a shanked punt. Hey, Andrew Osteen going into that game is second in UCF history for average yards per punt. I mean, he's in. He moved up to sixth in punt yards all time at UCF. I mean, he's not a bad punter. He had a bad punt. Uh, yeah. It's going to happen. Mistakes happen. Yeah, it was catastrophic for the game, but we have to keep that in perspective. These are people. Uh, these are these are young people they're and these are guys trying. right now they 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 are they're more than trying they're trying to figure out this yeah, whole thing because this this is a whole this is a whole different bug this is not we i think we got a little spoiled by the transition from frost to hype no they got us spoiled no which was a real guys we get it we we've lived through yes we've lived through two winless seasons a 17 game losing streak multiple losing you know, uh, seasons under 500. I mean, I, we're kind of tempered to handle this. And but, being but, so, so godforsaken thankful that we won a conference championship against Tulsa. Yeah, 2007, man. <laughs> oh, I my still, God. That's the greatest thing that ever happened. Because <laughs> we haven't done squat against Tulsa and won a conference title. Beat them twice that year. I know. <laughs> but, but anyway. But going back to that, yeah, you're right. A lot of fans, um, lot, let me phrase it, a lot of newer fans are very spoiled 
in, in the fact that UCF has delivered a lot in a very short period of time and have these very, very high expectations. I mean, going into the season for the for our picks, I did not pick UCF to even be in the conference championship game with Dylan Gabriel. Now, without, obviously, all, yeah, all everything's out the window. But, I mean, yeah. I, I legitimately thought two losses, maybe even three, was a very possible thing with the starters there. I mean, it – when you change a philosophy that's drastic, it takes time. And Hypel had the benefit that he had killer players. I and mean, that's what mm-hmm. Frost had. You know, that 2015 was the most talented, talented, winless team I've ever seen. And he just, they just needed a guy to bring them back together. And as we saw after he left, maybe it was the players. Well, now we got to work on bringing those players back. And it starts right now. Against ECU conference opener. Uh, Eric, kickoff is at uh, six o'clock. Is six that right? Eastern ESPN Plus. My good friend Courtney Lyle will be Courtney on Lyle. the call. And you see who he's working with? Yeah. Here's a name from the past Brandon Whedon. Correct. Former Oklahoma State quarterback, uh-huh. uh, Dallas Cowboy. He will yeah. be in the analyst role. So I'd like uh, to point out who drafted him. Ugh. Cleveland Browns. <laughs> Cleveland well, Browns. let me say, let me tell you something. In Brandon Whedon's defense, that last season at Oklahoma State, he was an absolute stud. Well, yeah, I mean, he was absolute just, he stud. He was a man among boys. I mean, he was what twenty eight. He was like twenty six. He was like he was like Chris Winkie for Florida State out there. Like he was he he was as that was as good a college football season as I've ever had. So I, I hope they're I hope they're in. I don't know if they're going to be in the booth there or if they're they going to use, They have up. been traveling this season. So I would, I would I love just, to meet him and be like, Brandon, man, I still remember that OK State season. And like, you were just a freaking man among boys. That, like you said, Drew, that was that was great. Thank you. Congratulations. They should have had a, a shot at that national title. They, they, they should have. That was a good team. It was Justin Blackman, yeah. the receiver. Boy, was he good. That, oh. that, I, Jack I'm fans are Jack fans right that. now are like getting indigestion just thinking about yeah. that. I'm still that sore about how that BCS title game went to freaking bama and lsu oh that was awful and it was a terrible game yeah it was a crappy game anyway all right uh but you know what eric right if it wasn't for that game we probably wouldn't have a 14 playoff you're right right that was the catalyst that was that was that was the it pissed off the the big 10 enough that 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 was the catalyst that changed it all so all right we're gonna take a break we come back uh eric is going to join us it will stay with us really and we're going to talk some UCF Hall of Fame, one of our favorite topics. And we have a special guest joining us, Afia Charles, former UCF track and field athlete who's going into the UCF Athletics Hall of Fame. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, along with Eric Lopez. Uh, Bryce and Turner will join us in a little bit. Stat Boy Drew, thanks to him for hanging, hanging out with us. Before. Actually, you're hanging on here for just a second, Drew. I, I didn't get the chance to read because I don't. Cause I suck at Instagram. I didn't get the chance to. I thought you were going to say, I'm not good at reading. <laughs> well, that's, that's, I listen at my other job. I better be good at reading, but anyway, um, <clears throat> Eric Gilliard, who we talked about in the first segment announced he is entering the transfer portal. I, I didn't, I didn't see his statement and thanks to Bryson for sending along a statement for Instagram. Let me, let me read this to be fair to Eric, because I think, I think this kind of sheds a little light on what's going on. Dear Night Nation, this is Eric Gilliard speaking on Instagram. Dear Night Nation, I want to thank you for the last four years. It is with mixed emotions today I announce my goodbye. My time here has been nothing less than amazing. I've enjoyed so much success here, winning one of the most memorable conference championships in school history, many games, and also individual success. Myself, all for one of the most 
prominent teams in college football. I'll always hold the memories I've had here along with the people in a special place in my heart. The adversity I've had here that I've dealt with has shaped me into a man. To my teammates, I love y'all boys and believe y'all will get the program back to where it needs to be. However, I feel it is in my best interest that I redshirt this season, graduate this fall, and take my talents to another university. God has a different plan for me. Stay tuned. So it feels like I'm putting words in Eric in Eric's mouth here, and I hate doing that, but it feels to me like this is this might be like an academic decision. He's like, you know what? I want to finish my degree and go to grad school and maybe use use my remaining eligibility as a graduate student. And you know what? Good for him. Good for him. I mean, you put the whole reason why these guys come here to begin with is to earn their degrees. And if Eric Gilliard believes that the best path for him to finish his bachelor's and get to a master's degree is to retain his eligibility one more, because, because he, again, he's redshirted. So he retains his eligibility. That means he would have, is he a senior or a junior? He's, he's a senior, but because of the extra year. So he's got two well, years of, he's going to have yeah. two years of eligibility left. He's going to have, he's got two years. Cause you have right. the, he could be the red shirt senior and the extra year. Right. So that's two years to get your master's degree. So, you know what? Hey, Eric Gilliard, thank you for everything you did for UCF. It's the right decision. If it's the right decision for you, we trust you. We're going to miss seeing number 10 out there. Um, I've interviewed him a couple of times. I love talking to him. What a cool dude. Um, but you know, he's, you know, as he's, as he's stepping away from UCF, he's making the, I think he, you know, he, he wants to make the right decision for him and his future and his family and, you know, good for him. We're going to miss seeing him, but best of luck. And, you know, once a night, always a night. So congrats, Eric. And thanks for everything you did for the program. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious where he'll end up. Yeah. Wherever it is, he's going to, he's, he's going to be earning his master's. I think that's going to be, that's good. So, all right. Let's move forward to UCF Hall of Fame. Eric Lopez, it's our it's the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, this is Hall of Fame weekend. So we have five inductees. Uh, Blake Bortles, Josh Sitton from football, the great, the goat himself, Jermaine Taylor from men's basketball. I'm so happy for Jermaine getting into the Hall of Fame finally. Natalie Land, who I know, who I know you know extremely well, and you'll have a feature coming out on her this week. And our guest on the Black and Gold Banneret podcast this week. Afia Charles, who is a UCF track and field athlete from 2011 to 2014. If you don't know about Afia, all right, here's her little, she was UCF's very first Olympian. Uh, she represented uh, her native Antigua and Barbuda in the 400 in the London 2012 games. This is, wow, she was a UCF athlete. Um, all America in the 4x400 relay, the indoor 4x400 relay the outdoor four by 100 relay and the outdoor four by 400 relay as well. Um, three conference USA outdoor titles when she was here with when Carol Smith Gilbert was here as well. She was her coach, two indoor titles, um, a fifth place finish in the 2013 NCAAs um, and, uh, or, or helped UCF reach fifth place in the 2013 NCAAs. Um, nice one, the silver and the four by 100 uh, relay. And just to show you how much of a, uh, you know, an all-around person that Afia was. She was also the president of the UCF Student Athlete Advisory Committee, which if, if, if you don't know about SAC, it's um, an extremely important um, uh, arm of the UCF athletics uh, uh, support staff and structure. And it's the vehicle by which athletes advocate for, their own, for themselves 
um, and for their sports from an, from an athlete level. And, um, and Afia was the president of that. And she's uh, an amazing athlete and an amazing chat too, wasn't she, Eric? She was. I recently had a chance to catch up with her for her reaction to being inducted to the Hall of Fame. Of course, she's used to being the first. She was the, she's the first UCF track athlete to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, coming from an incredible athletic family, as she kind of discusses with me about that, as well as her time at UCF. And uh, what, uh, what is she up to now? Here now is Afia Charles on the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. And joining us now here on the Black and Gold Banneret, she is getting inducted to the UCF Athletics Hall of Fame, an Olympian, the first track UCF track Olympian in program history. Of course, All-American, uh, one of the most uh, accomplished athletes in UCF history that ran the fastest 400 meters ever at UCF. I speak of Afia Charles joining us here. Uh, first of all, how does it sound now to be, I guess we call you now UCF Hall of Famer, Afia Charles. How does that sound? <laughs> It sounds amazing. It feels like, you know, all my hard work at UCF is finally getting recognized. Not even finally, it's just, you know, it takes time. You, you know, you usually wait till you're 10 years out of graduation. I'm only almost seven. So it feels amazing to, be, to know that all my hard work is being recognized. I'm just so excited. Take us through what you found out, because uh, I know how they usually what they'll, they'll reach out to the person that's getting inducted and, and all that. Just take, take me through the process when you, fa- you, know, you got that call and your reaction when you found out. So I found out, I want to say about almost two months ago, and I found out via um, Instagram direct message that I was even in the top 10. So when I found that out, I was talking to my husband, Torian Wilson, who actually played football at UCF. Um, And I I was like, I think I'm going to get inducted. He was like, you think? He was like, you're the only Olympian that you says have ever had for track and field. You're, you got it. But, you know, you're still in the back of your mind. You're like, ah, I don't want to get my hopes up too much. So then um, when they sent me another message saying, you know, just you know, anticipate a call or a FaceTime call, I was like, okay, that's great. But they t- said to anticipate it on Monday. And when I didn't get on Monday, I was thinking to myself, okay, I didn't get it. And then Tuesday, I got the call from the AD and I was just elated, excited. It was just, it was a great experience. So it was, it was everything I can imagine. You're going in with Jermaine Taylor, obviously, arguably the best youth basketball player ever. Natalie Lane, great softball player, Blake Bortles and Josh Sitton for football. Uh, Your thoughts on the class you're coming in. That's one of the strongest classes, if not the best in the history of that that's getting inducted to the hall of fame this class and the 2019 class are probably the top two ever uh i'm like honored first of all i was in school the same time as blake and natalie so it's great that we were around there at the same exact time so i know what they did in their sports blake was legit as everybody knows he like set the trend um and put ucf on the map him and that team and natalie was great in softball so i've always seen her work ethic we worked and we were on sack together i'm student at the advisory council so that's really cool so i've always you know saw them we always hang out together so it's, it's really cool to know that we're all inducted at the same time that's right. You all were there in the at the same time. Uh, that's a pretty, pretty strong deal. You are the first UCF track and field athlete to get inducted to the Hall of Fame. And we'll get into some of the athletes you've had and the su- success at UCF. But when I say that sentence, what does that mean to you that you're, you're, you're making an, uh, another first? You're the first UCF track and field alum to get inducted to the Hall of Fame. What does that mean to you? 
it's still a shocker. It didn't click to me until UCF Track and Field posted my picture this weekend. And then I read it, but it didn't click that it said first until my sister reposted it and said first. And I was like, wait, I'm the first? So I went back and I really like, you know, read it and took it in. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, it's just crazy that, you know, in UCF small history, even though we're like over 50 years, um, but just to know that, you know, I, I made my mark and I made it in such a monumental way. So it's amazing to be the first. I know there's gonna be a lot of people after me because UCF track and field has some great stars and um, future and also past. So I know this is not going to be the end for UCF track and field Hall of Famers. No, we're going to talk about some of them and, and that because you were part of maybe one of the greatest UCF teams in any sport ever uh, with a 2013 track team in a, in a little bit. But first, let's talk about the beginning here. What got you interested in being a track athlete? I know your mom was a track athlete. I, I was at a big part of it. And how did you end up at UCF? Oh, great question. So I didn't actually start running track until the end of my freshman year in high school. So I was run, playing um, basketball and, you know, wasn't that great. <laughs> and then my mom was like, why don't you just try out for tracks? So I actually tried out for track in basketball shorts and basketball shoes. And then the coach saw me and was just like, oh, we need you to join our team. Two weeks later, I was on the traveling squad, went to um, California. And I noted and when I won my first track meet ever, I was like, oh, I might have a niche for this. This might be my sport. So I just like really started to take it seriously. Um, sophomore year, that's I guess what I was like my highlight, my standout year. We won Penn Relays, which is one of the biggest competitions for a high school relay at um athlete so we won that and then it was just like okay it's time for me to kind of take it serious when it comes to where do I want to go to school and I know I wanted to go to a school that you know was going to work with me because I was you know I've only been running for three you know three four years so and I know I had the potential to go anywhere I was you know getting recruited from Florida Clemson you know all those big time schools but I wanted a school that would really understand that I am a fresh athlete and, you know, pull out my strengths. And I saw that at UCF, especially with Coach Carroll. I remember when she spoke to um, my parents, she was like, oh, this is going to be a 50, a 50 second quarter mile. This is going to be Olympian. And that's the only coach that actually said that to me. So she was like, she believed that. And then also knowing that my mom was in the Olympics. So I knew that, you know, there's a standard in our family that, you know, we, we try to excel in the, you know, in the best that we can. Currently, my sister plays in the WNBA so we have you know a lot of people in our family that you know try we excel we're very we're a very competitive family um so I just had to so when I went to UCF on that campus it's just like I don't know if I don't know if you guys believe, believe in God but I just felt like it was a voice in me and said this is where you need to be and from there I stopped my other visits and I said this is where I'm going to come and I chose UCF and it was the, one of the best decisions I could have ever made now, for those that may not be aware, tell the audience about your family, because I'm aware. I mean, you've it is a it's got to be one of the most competitive families that I've ever kind of kind of follow up. At. You just mentioned WNBA, a, a mom was an Olympian. Just describe, tell the people who they are and what they do, you know, because I don't know if people are aware of that. Yeah, of course. So um, my father, he used to play soccer for his country um, competitively in high school. 
Um, he came over. He's now he owns his own business. My older brother, he played sports all throughout high school. Now he owns his own business. Then it's me. So I was in the Olympian and I went to the Olympics. Uh, my mother, of course, ran in the 1984 Olympics for Antigua. She ran in 19 in the Los Angeles Olympics. My younger brother, he actually went to Canada and played basketball um, in Canada. And then my younger sister is currently um, playing for the Connecticut Suns. They're actually the number one team in the league right now. So we're, we're hoping to get a championship out of them this year. So a lot of, a lot of competitiveness, Uno and Monopoly is crazy in our house. Nobody likes to lose as you can imagine. So it's very, very competitive house household. That's incredible. (laughs) What is it like to grow up in that household? I mean, growing up, I mean, you know, I, I mean, that's kind of that's I just blows my mind away. Chris, speaking of, of Kyla Charles, who's obviously the Connecticut Sun WNBA, but that that had to be one of the most competitive growing up. Like, I can't imagine you guys not playing sports growing up. Right. I mean, you had All to. The time. Yep. Sports was always in us, but it was always sports or school. My parents was very, hey, if you're going to play a sport, you can play your sport, but also make sure your schoolwork is always on, you know, on the forefront as well. But we Pretty much all my siblings, except for my older brother, he got a scholarship for um, academics, got, you know, athletic scholarships for school. So we've always, you know, been a very athletic family. Like I said, it's always been competitive. That's just the nature of our family. Very competitive. Well, and that that's going to pay off for you because when you got to UCF, there was a lot of competitiveness within the team. I mean, you had some great track athletes just talk about something what was it like once you stepped in to campus at UCF and, and obviously come and commit to with coach Gilbert but seeing the roster that you would be a part of that will it, it's going to go down as maybe with the greatest in the history of UCF track what was that like walking into that so I definitely learned my lesson really fast so me and Ariel we came in at the same time Ariel Scott we both went to high school together so we both made it's funny we didn't even make our decision at the same time I didn't know she committed to UCF and we didn't know each other committed because we didn't our coach told us don't base your decision on each other. You guys got to make sure you find the place that's best for you guys. So when we first came, we found out we both committed, we were excited, but it also came to a rude, a rude awakening because when you come into, when you're in high school and you're beating up on every, all your competitors in high school, you're winning states every year. And then you come to uh, UCF where your teammates are beating you in practice every single day. <laughs> It's like different. So you're learning that lesson even before you get on the track. You have people like Jackie Coward, who, you know, was an absolute beast in the hurdles, but she's also had that endurance in the four and the two. You had Arielle Scott, you know, she was a one and two, but she was always my competition. She pushed me. Um, Sandy Jean-Claude. So there was a lot of competitive people um, on that team and it just made us, you know, work hard. I feel like practice was always a track meet. It was always a competition. So I loved it. Yeah, I mean, I think Tivius Freeman was there, Jackie yep. Coward. I mean, I, I did a top 80 UCF greatest female athletes in 2020, and you all were like within the top 25, and it was like, it was hard, to be honest, to separate you, yourselves because you yep. all were like, it's like a dream team. I really am not exaggerating that. How did you were able to fit in there and your role? Because all of you had roles within the team because – you know, 2013, you finished fifth in the NCAA championships in the outdoor championship, the highest finish for a non-BCS, you know, 
program at the time in track and field, which was unheard of. And it was because you all, I mean, Ariel won the national championship in the 60 meter in 2013. You had, so how did you, were able to find your role and your strengths, Aaron, with all this talent? Because you could have been, you know, there was a lot of track athletes there that could have easily been like the star in another program, but they had to kind of fit the roles they could fit on this pro on this team. Yeah, great question. So the great thing about track and field is, um, it's an individual, it's a team sport, but it's an individual sport. So the great thing is that you get to highlight your talents and your strengths based on your event. So although I had amazing teammates and very competitive, I was solely myself and some, and when Ashley Jocelyn, she came a little later, I was solely the only 400 meter runner. So it was just me primarily running the 400. And then when we had like our relays, like the four by four, then we will bring in Ariel, Octavius and things like that. So for me, it wasn't as difficult to kind of find my niche because I knew I knew where I stood on the team. I was that quarter miler. I was that 400 meter runner. That was my event. That was my focus. And that's what I was great and good at. I mean, great at. So um, I wouldn't say it wasn't as hard for me, but for people like Ariel, Octavius, when they're all, they both do the same exact events, it's hard for them to find their niche, but they all had that one event that they always excelled at. So that was good. And you all excelled in it. Uh, you mentioned the 400 meters. Why was that the event that really topped? I mean, you ran the fastest 400 meters ever at UCF. Uh, you would end up uh, participating in the Olympics in the four. What was it about the 400 meters where that was where you really excelled and dominated? I think for me with the 400, I was that was just my key event. Even in high school, I had the endurance of an 800 meter runner and then I had the speed of a sprinter. So they were just like, hey, put it in, put it in the 400. Um, so and I knew that. Uh, the great thing about the 400 is that it takes time for it. So for me, I'm the type of athlete, I have the speed, but it takes time for me to get up to my speed, get up to my optimal um, speed. So the 400 was just that race that, you know, was a perfect blend of my strengths, which is high endurance. And then also just the speed, just the natural speed and ability that I had. You're also tremendous as part of the relay. You were an All-American in the 4x400. You are also in the relays of the 4x100. Talk about the success you had from a relay, because UCF, every time they won, it seemed like you were a part of it, and I don't think that was an accident. Yeah, yes, I was definitely a part of every relay. Um, Relays has always been um, one of my favorite events, because that is how we feel more as a team. Like I mentioned earlier, with track, it's an individual sport. So when you're running an individual race, you're running for yourself. And sometimes when you're running for yourself, you don't have that drive as if you're running with a team. As when you're passing that baton, you're getting that baton from a team and you know that you're that one person, if you're that one person that messes up, you're messing it up for your whole team. So it gives you that more drive and that push and then seeing your teammates at the line, waiting for you, waiting for them to hand off the baton, it just gears you up. So I loved relays. That was one of my favorite things. And I always told my coach, put me on every relay possible because I knew once I'm on that relay, you know, I'm unstoppable. Obviously, uh, you make the Olympics. I want take us through that process. There, 2012, you qualify for the Olympics in London. 28 years to when your mom participated, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, in Los Angeles in the '84 Olympics. And people may not be aware of this. Your mom ran what the 100 meters, 200 meters in LA in the as well. Mm-hmm. In the lo- right, yeah. she so because people might think, oh well, you're you know you're doing the same events that she. No, not the case. You two had some differences, which mm-hmm. I, I'm so fascinated by that. Yeah. So what was that like? Was there extra pressure that you put on yourself to qualify, not just to, to qualify for the Olympics, but 
knowing that your family's history with your mom having been there in, in LA in 84? So that's a really good question. So one thing, my, my mom never pressured, pressured me to run, run track. She, like I mentioned, I was playing basketball and she was like, why don't you just try it? So it was never <laughs> pressured. She actually did not buy me my first pair of track shoes until she knew I was serious about track. I was running in basketball shoes for maybe about two weeks until they were like, oh, Fia's traveling. And she was like, okay, so let me go buy you some track shoes. I want to make sure that you're serious. So she never pushed me. So I never felt that pressure, um, so to say in that. But also in the back of my mind, I know that I wanted to be as great or even better than my mom. So I, maybe I just put the pressure on myself, you know? And when it came to that um, Olympic experience, it was actually kind of crazy because at first I didn't know I even qualified. I actually went home for two weeks and I was eating and I'm thinking track and field is over, you know, for the season and gear up, gear up for the next year. And then I got a call from my country and Tegan, they were just like, hey, you know, you qualified, right? You know, you're the only woman <laughs> track and field athlete that we have. Um, do you want to go? And I was just thinking to myself, um, yeah. So I actually, that same, like maybe two days later, I booked the flight, came back to Mar- um, came back to Florida. And um, me and Coach Carol, we had about three, four weeks to get me back in shape because that it only takes a week to get out of track shape. So we had a couple of weeks to get back in shape. And I was working with um, Dee Dee Trotter. She was training with us at the time. She actually won the bronze in the Olympics that year. So me and Dee Dee were back to back every day, just working, you know, um, tweaking a few things. But, you know, we just got ready for the Olympics. And it was just a great experience overall. What was it like? You, got, you, you described how you found out once you knew you qualified for the Olympics. Once you stepped in to the track up there in London. What's going through your mind as you're there, the the biggest event, here you are in this event, 28 years ago, your mom was in in a Los Angeles track. Here you are in the London track, one of the most watched events uh, ever. What was that, what's going through your mind there? Ah, man. So just seeing the crowd. So there was like over a hundred thousand people in the crowd. And I just remember, you know, my dad, uh, he he wasn't able to make it to the Olympics, but he made sure that my mom can go. He was like, okay, if I can't make it, then I'm buying you the flight, I'm buying you the ticket, I need you there to represent, you know, to so I see a familiar face. And it's actually crazy, when I walked out the crowd, I was walking to the line to my blocks, and I don't know how I heard her voice, but I heard my mom's voice, and I literally saw her in the crowd, and I was just like, I'm ready. Like it just gave me that, you know, I just felt like at peace and comfort and to be able to point her out, at, point her out out of a, over a hundred and about, no, a hundred thousand people and just hear her voice and just hear her and see her. It just made me when I walked on that line, just, you know, feel that, you know, feel at peace and like I, I deserve to be here. So it was an exciting moment. That's amazing. Uh, describe what's it. For those, because there's not been many people that have been in your shoes, especially from UCF. Michelle Akers obviously comes to mind. Alina Reyes, who got inducted recently from soccer. She's been to the Olympics an expert. But to have that, to say you're an Olympian, when you look back on that, you know, and who knows, with the family track record you all have down the road, you might have a family, (laughs) right? You might have a son or a daughter that might go to pursue the Olympics. What would you tell that son or daughter if you have, you know, about your experience uh, and, and when you were, you look back, one thing I would definitely tell them is for this type for the Olympic experience, you don't take anything for granted. Just being there is an experience. Just walking into the, I tell people just walking into the cafeteria 
and you're seeing greats or the best athletes from every single country in the world right there. And they're normal people. They're people just like you and me, but in their country, they're stars. So being able to go into um, an arena and just say like, anybody, if you put the hard work, the dedication, anybody can do this. They were regular people. It was like, not like they had any superpowers or they look any different than you and I, you know, they just had the opportunity. So when you get that opportunity, just cherish that moment um, and just know that it's something that it's, it was life-changing for me. It showed me that any room, I deserve to be in any room that I put, I set my mind to. Um, and it just set the trajectory of my career. And I know that, and every time now that I'm in a room, I feel confident. Cause I'm like, Hey, I'm Olympian. I don't why, why am I nervous? You know, I, I accomplished so much already in my career and I just have to continue to do so. Of course, this past summer we had the Olympics and Renaya Jones was in the in the forefront from a UCF standpoint. You're mm-hmm. trying to qualify for the Olympics. She finished second in the NCAA championships. Participated up in Port in, in Oregon. Did, were you able to follow what she was doing? Because she kind of took a lot of UCF fans following. You know, and social media has kind of helped in that with the coverage and everything. And uh, it really a lot of UCF fans jumped on that and and, and, and the track field. Did were you able to follow what Renaya was doing? And yes, what, I didn't what, follow it until late, until maybe I want to say until regionals, and then I really start seeing her name and seeing what she's doing. I'm like, wow, this girl's a beast, and she's so young, and her personality is so bubbly. And that's what you need. You just need someone who's just carefree and just having fun with it. Because sport is um, any type of sport, especially track and field, is very mental. So once you start playing that mental game and you lose that fun out of it, it changes how you perform. So to see how much fun she was having, how she was always smiling, her interviews, it shows that if she keeps that same mentality, that same, you know, perseverance, she's, I'm, I have no doubt that she'll be Olympian one day. She'll win nationals next year, um, that she'll go far and she will be most likely be a UCF Hall of Famer as well in the future. She was just a freshman in doing yeah. it, uh, too, which is what kind of blows me away. And she handled all the expectations very well. Uh, as Shira Collins, her teammate, was also in the NCAA championships. They're part of this youth movement and track that, honestly, it compares to the group that you were a part of when you all came in at the same time. I know Dana Boone's the new head coach there. That's kind of their vision there as they kind of develop it. I don't know if you've been able to follow the track there, but people are more are interested in UCF track. And I think you're a big part of that. And I think it's perfect that you're getting inducted in an Olympic year and just fresh off Renaya Jones really making headlines for UCF track because there's a lot of UCF fans that are looking forward to the upcoming track season because of her. Yep, exactly. Uh, it Tell me about Coach Gilbert, what she meant to you, Carol, Carol Smith Gilbert. She went on to USC, won a national championship, and she just got became the head coach at Georgia. In fact, she's the director of, tra- of track over there at Georgia. So she's making her own history. But what what was it about her that that drew you to go and 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 go and you know commit to her and has made her so why is she so successful? So one thing about Coach Carroll is that she is one determined and persistent lady. She is she definitely some one of the things that I admired for her, from her and what she always used to tell us is never take no for an answer. Always go after what you want. And, and I'm not even surprised that she's so successful. I was just actually writing her on Instagram and I told her like, you're the GOAT. You're the greatest of all time. Like the things that you have, you've accomplished um, is unmatched. And I, I know when she first told her that she was leaving, I was sad, but I knew like UCF wasn't, you know, wasn't the, the um, 
the end for her. I knew that she, like her talent, her name deserved to be nation, nation, you know, national wide. And USC was perfect for her. She got that national championship that she deserved and she worked for it. I know she's going to do great things at Georgia, but um, Coach Carroll was a great influence in my life. And she was the type of person, the type of coach that you just admired and you wanted in your corner. You wanted to have that coach to coach you because she knew your strengths, she knew your weaknesses, and she knew how to pull it out of you, whether you liked it or not. And that's one thing that I can definitely say is that she pulled, you know, my strengths out of me. You were a part of three outdoor champ uh, conference USA championships, two indoor conference USA championships. I mentioned earlier, 2013 UCF finished fifth in the NCAA championships, the, the first non-Power 5 program since 2000 to earn a top five finish in the outdoor championships. Uh, you were All-American. All, I mean, you still hold the 400-meter record. You were at 52.4. Do you remember when you broke that 400-meter record? Yes, I do. It was conference champ, conference 2013. Yep, 2013 conference. We were in at, um, was it Rice? Yep, and we were in Texas. Uh, that was one of the highlights of my career, especially at UCF. My fastest time actually was able to um, have my country's national record with that time as well. So it was a great race. And it was just that was when I knew, OK, I got this. this that, was, that was my year. We had a great year. I mean, it was just a great year for UCF, period. That's when we won the Fiesta Bowl the year we my junior, we won our, the Fiesta Bowl for football. We won, you know, the, the conference championship. So it was, that was just a great year for UCF all the way around. Well, and what was so amazing about that, during that time frame, you know, UCF at the top, you got Houston, yeah. Leroy Burrell, Carl Lewis, their tradition there at Houston. What was that like to go up against Houston? And, I mean, being among the best in the country, you know, I mean, you're talking, these are the, the goats of, of track and field. These are legends. They're all, uh, you're, you're all kind of coaching here and involved in some of the great athletes that have been produced at that time. Yeah, so Houston was always one of our top competitors. Houston and e, um, ECU was always really good competitors with us, especially um, Houston on the sprint side. We were always neck and neck when it came to sprints, 100, 200, 400. So it was all, we always knew that if we're running against Houston in a race, we were going to run one of our fastest times. So, and I like running against them because they pushed me and they made sure that I PR, they helped me PR, they helped me win these records. But it was always good to have competition with track and field. That's what you need. If you're in a race with a whole with people who are not running fast times, you're most likely not going to run a fast time because you're going to be in the lead, or you're going to be in the lead, and you're not having anybody toe and toe actually pushing you throughout the whole race. You get lax. So I loved running against Houston because from start to finish, they were right there and they pushed me and they didn't allow me to relax in between my races um, and things like that. So allow me to, you know, run those fast times and do what I had to do to win. We mentioned you're the first UCF track and field alum to get inducted to the Hall of Fame, but we both agree you should not be the last. You will they definitely won't be the last. Just let's talk about some of your teammates here. Uh, and, and you can name as many more as you want. I'll name a few to start. Octavius Freeman, Ariel Scott, Jackie Coward, those three. Start with those three. Why were they so great? I think all three have legitimate cases to be in the Hall of Fame down the road. I know they're not alone in that in, of all your teammates, but they, they're the ones that kind of stood out to me. Your thoughts on them? So definitely Jackie Coward. Jackie Coward has been a beast since high school and beyond. I remember even coming into UCF and they're like, you're going to be in school. You're going to be running with Jackie Coward. 
And back then I didn't know the, the magnitude of her name until I actually compete, until I was actually her teammate and I saw her work ethic. Like Jackie was a workhorse from start to finish. Track is what she bled, um, tracks what she loved. And it showed in her work ethic and how in her races, always finishing top eight, um, always making a final. So Jackie is one, one person that I admired and I saw and she pushed me. Ariel, like I mentioned, we went to high school together. We grew up together. So I know the worth at you know the work ethic of Ariel. Ariel was a beast. Ariel is the type of person that can um <laughs> that can roll out of bed and run a fast time. No, just pure natural talent. And um she was just one of the top, one of my favorite people to train with and to watch because her her um talent wasn't just limited. She could run anything between the one and the four and win every event and win each one if she needed to and she was a team player whether she was hurt whether she was wasn't feeling well she would jump on that line and say I got you coach I'll do it for the team um so she was one of my favorites and she's still one of my best friends and then Octavius was just pure talent pure so natural um she was the type of person that no technique no technique needed but she would just run fast you just tell Octavius to go and she would go her specialty was the one and the two, but the one was, you know, that was her her top event and she just always excelled at it. No matter what, she was our, our anchor leg in the um, four by one in that relay and she killed it. She helped us um, get to second place, get that second place finish. So she was amazing. So definitely people that deserve that Hall of Fame title. By the way, that 13 team too, they also induct teams. They've had a, a cheerleading national championship team. The 1978 volleyball national championship team has been inducted to the Hall of Fame. I think that 2013 outdoor team in particular should get consideration considering what you all accomplished. I mentioned, I'm not, I mean, it just blows my mind. Fifth place. We won't have to worry about this anymore. We're moving to the Big 12 now, so they'll have more yeah. resources, but we didn't have the resources of some of the big brands. What, mm-hmm. made, what made that 13 team such a legendary team? I would say, I think that with that 13 team, we we were just on a different mindset. We knew in 2000, the year before, we were, you know, we were winning, we were winning um, championships and, but we just knew like, it was like something about 2013 was just different for us. We just knew the talent that we had and even people that weren't even um, that we didn't even mention, like Sandy Jean-Claude, who, you know, that year she made it to nationals in the 400 meter hurdles. We had um, our um, Sanisha Williams, who was our long jumper, Jen Clayton, who was our long jumper. So we had a lot of talent on that team and everybody pushed everyone. I think that year is when we said we deserve to be a nationals we deserve to be a national winning team and the whole our mindset that entire year was nationals focus we did a lot of mental training we did a lot of workshops to strengthen our mental that year and that's what we needed because like i mentioned earlier track can be a very mental sport so when you have that mental block it can affect your racing and it can affect your competition so that year was just different from the start to the finish coach carroll said we're going to be one of the top teams this year. And that's what we did. Amazing. Amazing. Couple last things. Tell the UCF uh, fans, what have you been up to post UCF, post your track career? 
All right. So great question. So um, earlier this year, I, I got married. I got married to my college sweetheart, Torin Wilson. He was the left tackle at UCF, number 72. Um, currently, I am a manager at a hospital. And then I also just started my financial services business um, as well. My dad was, you know, in this business, um, was doing it for about 20 plus years. And he was just like, hey, you're the beneficiary. So I actually started taking it seriously. So I help people with financial education. Um, personal, you know, finance, investments, and life insurance, and things in that area, and then also providing them with opportunities to make some additional money, and you know, on this on the side. So it's just great to know that, and I always see this in my. It, I take track and put this in my everyday, you know, work as well when it comes to when I'm working at the hospital as a manager and then also my side business. I'm just, you know, trying to be competitive and be one of the best out there, learn, educate and things like that. So that's kind of what I'm doing now. I have to ask the follow up for a football audience. First of all, I was a big Tory Wilson fan myself. Yeah. I was a great lineman. You see, I've did you know each other when you're both going to school? Did you meet afterwards? How did you both come yeah, up? So Torin and I met freshman year. So we met freshman year in high school. Um, one of two of my teammates was actually his high. No, I said freshman year in high school. We met freshman year in college. Me and Torian met um, freshman year in college in August. Um, two of my high, two of my teammates, Sandy and Destiny, were actually his high school. They went to high school with Torian. So we've been together since 2010 in high school, August. 2010 we've been together ever since November is gonna make about 11 years since we've been official so touring was one of the huge supports during my track and field career he's every time we had a track meet at college or on campus he was right there running around running alongside with me on the um on the fence and things so um he's been a monumental part of my success at UCF because he's always make help keep me level when I wanted to freak out and I wanted to quit he was the one pushing me he was like your practices are nothing like how mine's are you can do it <laughs> so we were always like just pushing and motivating ourselves um, motivating each other during our careers that's a remarkable I had no idea you two had that long time relation that's pretty wild I mean and the fact you both were athletes at a high level that that has to be so I mean there has to be that bond in there obviously both yeah. being athletes can relate to each other what you're going through even though it's different sports yep very much so and he was and we both 2013 was both our years they won he won he was part of that oh that's right festival and i won you know had the fastest time that year so that was we always say that was our that was one of our best ucf years that was one of the best ucf years period right <laughs> and you two set the tone you set the tone for football that was good yeah. wow uh that's amazing i did not know that by the way your family that is you realize when you, if you got you have kids there, that's that the I mean, <laughs> the sport. Who's the comp Who's the more competitive of the two of you? Who's the more competitive? Yeah, Torian, who? You know, it's funny. We actually played Uno this weekend, and I can't even tell you. We were sending um, videos to our family, and they were like, "Both of you guys are crazy." They're like, "Both of you guys sending us the same things." We are we are very highly competitive. We we compete each other but that's what we need we push each other we push each other for our goals and our dreams um so i couldn't even tell you who's more competitive we're just like on an equal level on that on that note well he's got to be excited about this class mm -hmm. having played with blake and then with you i mean that for him it's <laughs> yeah. this has got to be surreal for him I, I would imagine for him yes he is super excited he's like oh man i'm so excited for you you deserve it and he's gonna be able to see blake he's seen i believe 
um, Blake came into one of Torian's camps a couple years back, but it's good just to see them back on campus. And that's what we're looking for, just going back on UCF, seeing the changes that, you know, has come about um, and just being we're back in our old stomping grounds where it all began. Y'all gone to any football games recently? Uh, I mean, I haven't been to a football game in maybe three years. So I am so excited for this one. Okay. So we're going to so get honored excited. at halftime with, along with this great class and yep. rightfully so uh congratulations you've done a great career and being honored well deserved uh significant for track and field thank you so much for taking the busy time and uh again well deserved ucf hall of famer field charles that sounds that's a good ring has a nice ring to it uh congrats <laughs> uh, thank you for doing this and uh, we'll talk soon all right thank you so much eric all right. Thanks again to Afia Charles Wilson, who uh, joining us. Of course, you heard right there her husband, Torian Wilson, mm-hmm. who played, obviously, uh, football with Blake Bortles, ironically enough, who's in this Hall of Fame class. Uh, her sister's with the Connecticut Sun uh, in the WNBA playoffs. Pretty athletic family. Her mom, obviously, part of the Olympics. But uh, really, really impressed by Afia. Well-deserved of this honor, part of this great class and uh, really excited for her. And we'll have a feature on her, including exclusive comments from Carol Smith-Gilbert, who's now the director of track and field at Georgia and her former UCF head coach. That'll be on our Black and Gold Banneret site this week, as is our feature on Natalie Land. By the way, happy birthday, Natalie Land. Wednesday, as we record this, Wednesday is her birthday. Birthday, Nat. All right, so let me ask you this. So, we, we've, you know, congrats again to Afia. I mean, she's she deserves it. There's no doubt about it. Let me ask you this, Eric. Track and field alumni right now. Mm-hmm. Who's the next one who's going to get inducted? Glad you asked. If you go to our YouTube page and subscribe and like our YouTube page, myself and Bryson Turner did a special night shift edition this week on the Hall of Fame. And one of the topics we broke up uh, we topic was that. I think the answer is Jackie Coward, to me, who you've covered, Jeff, and you've yep. interviewed. She to was me, the first th- ever yeah. interview on Black and Gold Banneret. Very Wow. First. Yeah. And you right can make the argument going to the Olympics. You can make the argument she probably should have been the first track athlete. Although again, Afia making the Olympics in an Olympic year really makes a ton of sense. Uh, Jackie Coward, Octavius Freeman, and Ariel Scott, I think, are the three names to watch. And I and I said on the night shift edition with Bryson, those three should be in within the next decade. And I think Afia, and we talked about that with Afia in the interview. Uh, they all should be in with they met to this program that 2013 team. They were a top. They were finished fifth. In the NCAA championships, the highest ranking for a non-Power 5 program at that time. Uh, I think those three should be in within the next decade. I think Afia getting in should open the floodgates for track and field athletes and cross-country, perhaps, to get start getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. I hope so. I hope so, because we're seeing, you know, we've seen a long-term development of that program into, I think, a real power. And once, once you, this is, by the way, you talk about a program that's going to really make leaps and bounds when they get to the Big 12. I think track and field is going to make a big jump. A lot of young football. talent there. Yeah. I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And when you get that, you know, when you get that, that power conference tag and you start recruiting in some of the places that you, that, that you know, UCF can recruit. Oh boy. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. So congrats to Afia. Congrats to all of the inductees to Blake, to Natalie, to Josh. And of course, to Jermaine. Uh, the Friday Hall night's the big ceremony. Yep. Saturday they'll be ceremony. honored during the game. It will be at the, the ceremony will be at the Celeste Hotel, which is the new hotel that opened up uh, along Alfea Trail on the front of the university. Um, 6 p.m. cocktail reception, followed by dinner program at seven. Um, and the uh, and of course, they, the five inductees will be honored 
um, during the uh, football game on Saturday, uh, which of course is the 6 p.m. Uh, kickoff. And like Eric said, don't forget to watch that edition of Night Shift where he and Bryson break down the Hall of Fame class. Um, definitely worth watching because if you're a UCF history buff like we are, that's a lot of fun to, to, to really talk about. So, all right, let's take a break. We come back. Lo and behold, Bryson Turner is going to join us. We're going to talk about uh, the Olympic sports. Uh, volleyball continues their hot start. Big weekend coming up for men's soccer and plenty more when we return. This is the Black and Gold Banneret podcast back after this. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez with you, joined by Bryson Turner to talk about the world of UCF sports. Um, the uh, Let's start with volleyball. They have won, Bryson, seven matches in a row and have only lost in that process uh, some five sets. Uh, they went on the road for the, the long road trip, which is Tulsa and Wichita State, and they came out of there with a win. I thought that the Wichita State match was going to be tough. They won that one in five, uh, and then they came back. Tulsa gave them a little bit of a run, but they beat them in four. They come back home for Houston and Tulane this week. Um, Houston is much improved. I think they're going to be, uh, that's going to be a tough out, but, um, but let's talk about volleyball here. We, you know, we had some, uh, obviously we had a milestone with Amber Olson hitting 2000 assists for her career, which is huge. Um, and this team, they really haven't been beaten by anybody since the South Carolina match. And the reason why I say that is that, yeah, they lost to Georgia on September 11th, which is the only, their only loss since, you know, in the last month, but that was a five setter. That one could have gone either way. I think it went 16, 14 in the fifth. So that's kind of like a coin flip. Um, this team is hot right now, man. And, you know, I'm looking at, I'm, and their RPI is 17th. And that RPI is going to drop a little bit more because they're playing the conference, the conference slate. So they got to just keep winning. But, you know, right now, Todd Dashen has got to be pretty happy, right? This team's in a good place. Oh, yes, I agree with that. And one thing that I really do not want to understate what half uh, understate is um, obviously McKenna Melville was McKenna Melville. But looking at the individual stats over the course of these two games, uh, freshman, uh, fre- uh, fre- freshman Caitlin Grimes had a career high 13 digs in the Wichita State game. She's and been really then good. In the Tulsa, and then in the Tulsa game, freshman outside hitter Heidi Bond had or Bondi had a had a career high 16 kills. So I think one thing that's very un, un, that that is what happened that's very understated in volleyball this week is we have is it's not just McKenna Melville and Amory Watson we have some really good depth going on the volleyball roster at the moment young talent too those two players you mentioned are freshmen Caitlin Grimes and Heidi Bondi and Todd has told me that like the, they are like the next generation they're the post McKenna post Anne Marie kind of horses that they're hitching their saddle to right Eric I mean that's yeah. And that's but, encouraging to see them really getting that playing time and succeeding in that playing time. But that's in that, but that's the advantage where you have a McKenna Melville, you have that room for margin where you could develop your young players and play them, which football doesn't have with Dylan Gabriel. This is the opposite of football. I mean, I watched the Wichita State match, which they were down two sets to one. You know, when we looked at the schedule, I remember we said this last week. I know you weren't with us, Jeff, but I said Wichita State, that was a match you circled in Wichita that could be a match that could be in danger of losing. There's a mm-hmm. it's down the road. And they were down two sets to one. UCF responded. And in the fifth set at the end of the day is we got McKenna. They don't. Like, she is amazing. Like, hand her the player of the year already. She's if an she, alien, man. 
she's amazing, but it allows the young players to play to their roles and not force feed them. Uh, and I saw, and then the Tulsa match, they went on the road. That's a big road uh, swing there for UCF. Now they come home. This is probably their toughest home stretch with Houston and Tulane. Houston could be arguably the second best team in the league. Remember, we thought they might play in the championship this coming year, but they lost in the semis. I'm looking forward to that match. And then Tulane, I know you've always been impressed with them. They're kind of scuffling a little bit, but they still have talent there. Yeah, well, well, here here's a little bit on Tulane. They they're they're three and one in the conference, and their only loss was to Houston at home in four in what was a pretty tight match. Um, as far as Houston's concerned, uh, they lost their opening conference match to Tulsa in five. Since then, they've won uh, they won three in a row, including at Tulane and at obviously the Tulane match we're talking about, but also at Temple. They also beat Wichita State at home, so. Houston comes in um, right now, and I want to take a look at the standings. UCF leads the standings in the American at 4-0. They're all alone right now. Um, in the volleyball standings, you have four teams behind them at 3-1. Houston, Cincinnati, Tulane, and SMU. And like you said, this is right now, this is, the tough, this is the toughest home weekend that UCF volleyball has. We'll see how it shakes out the rest of the year. But – I think this is key. Houston's 13 and three overall. Tulane's 10 and six overall. Tulane gave UCF some problems. I really like Lexi Douglas. She's one of the best players in the conference for Tulane. Um, you know, yeah, this is, this, this is another, t- if, if UCF can take care of business at home this weekend, I think that's going to be a real, if, if they were good, if they were, if, if I had to rank who the likely, the uh, likeliness of them losing a match at home this weekend could be it with the back-to-back with Houston and Tulane. This is a, so this is an interesting stretch. We'll see how they respond. But again, uh, you got to feel good when you have number 20 on your side of the net. That Mm -hmm. helps. (laughs) She just dominated. She's the ace of spades in your back pocket. She's having her best year, Jeff. She's having her best year. And this is, and by the way, this is, she still has one more year to go. Okay. And you look at the, at the stats, (laughs) Bryson, look at this. She is, First in the country in points, okay, 339 and a half. She's second in the country in total kills with two, with uh, 293. And she's third in the country in total swings with 766. If, if she doesn't whistle, make it. If, if I she, could whistle, I, could whistle, I would whistle at that. If she doesn't make an All-American, I'm not talking about honorable mention, which she's First done the last three years. First All-American. First or at least no second. Doubt. First or second. She has to. If not, I'm sorry, Todd, but and, and you follow volleyball fans, but then your All-American system is a joke if she's not. I'm sorry. I I, I will not even give any credence to it if it does if she doesn't. Yeah. She deserves one it. I, one thing I do want to I want to make sure we watch for in this Houston game for UCF fans to pay attention to, uh, look out for senior setter Amber Olsen because you, you mentioned earlier she broke 2,000 assists, but during that stretch, she scored. She had a career high fifty-one assists in the Wichita State game, mm-hmm. and then followed up with her second-best career performance with forty-nine assists in the Tulsa game. So, and th- because of that, she broke two thousand assists, and she is currently in striking distance of her sister. And yep. if she if she puts on another performance like she did this this weekend, she could very well pass her sister. In the Houston in the Houston match, so I, so that's a little storyline that I that would be nice for UCF fans. To look I know this for a fact. I don't know if Amber listens to the podcast, but Amber, if you're listening, I know for a fact that you would like nothing more than to pass your sister in the all time assist assist list. I know that for a fact because 
those two are something else. They are so competitive. And, um, you know, Erin Olson was an outstanding setter for UCF when she was here. She was the straw that stirred the drink and she, and Amber came up right underneath her and, and has developed herself into a fantastic athlete. So I'm Amber. We're really happy for you. Congratulations. Keep up the good work. And boy, it's fun to watch her run the offense. She's, she's a, she's a Swiss army knife out there. She loved, and by the way, the thing I love about Amber Olson the most, she, whenever she gets a block, she's so tall as a setter. She gets blocks at the net and that's like a big boost, a big emotional boost for the team every time she does that. So a um, couple of things we wanted to, with, with uh, Houston, uh, they are uh, a really good defensive team so far this year. Number one in the conference in, uh, or, or rather, uh, Kate uh, George Glades uh, for, uh, for Houston is 12th in the country in uh, digs per set, uh, first in the conference, and then um, really good uh, setter for them, Annie Cook, is first in the conference in, in assists. So uh, be mindful. A very good defensive team. Uh, Rachel Tullis um, leads, leads the American in blocks. Um, so they're, they're going to present a good challenge for UCF's offense. So we'll see what UCF can pull off in that first, uh, match. Eric, let's move on to, uh, and Bryson, let's move on to women's soccer here because they are in a bit of a lull right now, uh, since they've started conference play, they are one, excuse me, they are Oh, two and one in conference. Uh, they, uh, tied SMU last time out on Thursday. They lost two to one at home to Memphis in, of course, that rivalry game. But now they have an even bigger rivalry match coming up on Thursday night, 6 p.m. against South Florida, uh, a team who has been there, Bugaboo. This is their only time that they will play the Bulls this season. It is at home. And all of a sudden, we're looking at the schedule. They got five games to go in the regular season. And this is this is crunch time for, for women's soccer, right? So what's so so what are we seeing right now? We're well, seeing right – well, let me just uh, jump in here, Bryson, because – Let's jump in on the RPI because now this is part of the story, Jeff. What's the RPI for women's soccer? Women's soccer right now, I'm seeing 34. So you're getting right into that bubble range right now. To me, this Mm. South Florida match is almost a must win because this is going to be their last quality on the resume match the rest of the season. The rest of the season, they're facing teams that have not great RPIs. Now, now they did draw SMU, who's 20th. That's the top-ranked American team in the RPI. Correct. Yeah. But I think they got to win this match, get a result. And obviously the story, Bryson, is Caroline Delisle because she was the story in that SMU match. 11 saves. We haven't seen that from a UCF goalkeeper in a long time, haven't we? No, we have not. Uh, you would not believe the research that I had to go to in order to figure this one out. Because, uh, But <laughs> the last time that a UCF women's goalkeeper had more than 11 saves or more, was Jennifer Manis back in 2007 in a game against I remember Minnesota. Jen I remember Jen she was I think she was playing when when we were seniors right Eric That sounds right yeah that's our 07 yeah that's yep. that's about right so, so yeah but Caroline Delisle has honestly really been the center of this team I mean Kristen Scott and and Ellie Moreno have done a very great job on offense, but considering how uh, how how many shots have been shot her way, Caroline Delisle's way this year, I mean she is definitely the definitely the centerpiece of this team. I would say the the problem I think you see right now, Eric, you're right about this. With five games to go, you you got to start putting results up because yeah. here's the story. Right now, UCF has zero points in the conference. They're yeah. 0-2 and one. South Florida two zero and one. So you're they so that's it that's 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 seven right there for them. 
Now you can start to put dents in it, right? Because you're already, you're not going to get the one back against Memphis. Who's in second. You you already drew SMU. Who's in fourth. You still got, uh, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four teams ahead of you remaining on the schedule. But like you said, you got to start putting You got to start putting up three points. Yeah, because your non-conference resume is good enough to make the tournament, but you got to yeah. get some results in the conference. You don't want to play. You're playing yourself backwards. They got to get a result against South Florida. They got to get a result. If you don't, you're pretty much out of the conference regular season title. Now you're just battling to make sure you make the conference tournament and things like that because mm-hmm. your RPI is not going to improve based on the opponents you got coming up. So you got to get a result here. It's your big rivals. It's at home. We'll see what happens. This is a very uncharacteristic Coach Sahadek team. They give up a lot of shots. They've given up an average so far twice as many shots than they have uh, normally in a Sahadek typical team, going back to 2019, the normal year. This, they've given up two twice as many shots on average than they did uh, two years ago. I, I, yeah. I would also say that um, you know SMU draw, drawing against SMU at the very least slows their downward momentum they've been having. If any, if there is a time now, you said it's crunch time. This is definitely crunch time because you lose two straight. You draw against the top team in RPI in the conference. So you, this is going to be a very important game for for women's soccer this season for sure. South Florida match is. Slated. I just lost it. Uh, oh, there it is. It's slated for 6 p.m. on Thursday. And then that quick turnaround Sunday at 1 against uh, Tulsa. By the way, looking at the standings, of course, you're talking about South Florida being 2-0-1, 7-2-2 overall, first place in the American. Tulsa right now is tied for sixth in the American with Temple at 1-2 in conference, 6-5-1 overall. So um, I think if you can get through South Florida, find a way to get that three points. You can get that. You pick up another three at Tulsa. All of a sudden, you're 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 in. You get a six point weekend. That's that's going to be huge. That's going to be a big boost. By the way, I've made a mistake that you're there's zero points. They're actually at one point in the standing. Yes, I mean you got your draw point. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's where we stand on that. Uh, men's soccer. uh, That. Four game win streak that they had, Bryson got snapped uh, on Sunday against Memphis at home in a game that was. This is just a bizarre result. Uh, three nothing win for oh, yeah. Memphis. Um, this this one was just weird. I, I don't know. I don't know what happened in this. It, it felt like. Oh, I, oh, I can. You, tell know you, what what it fe- you know what it felt like? Okay, you ever played Madden? And oh yes. And, and like, there's one game a season you could have it on easy mode, but there's one game a season where the the computer just decides you're not winning, right? And that's what this game felt like. So it dropped UCF to three and one, tied for second with SMU behind four, behind four and O Tulsa, who that was number six in the country and who the Knights play on Sunday, October the 10th at 6 p.m. That is a huge game. Rank number five, UCF. right? Uh, I, I On the UCF schedule, they're ranked number six. Let me double check. The that's pretty still here, good but- ranking. Here's my, my thoughts on this. This is where UCF has to start building their resume in men's soccer. Yeah. These two games, uh, you know, Tulsa, SMU, if they want to get back to the NCAA tournament, they got to get results against Tulsa and SMU in particular and obviously get stay at the top of the league. But it, this yeah. is a huge match from a resume. UCF doesn't have any marquee wins to this point in their resume. They have got to get some results here against these teams if they want to make it back to the tournament. And this Tulsa team has been coming along since the spring they have carried that momentum since the spring jeff you saw them that was the yeah. championship match this is a rematch of the conference championship game yeah this is and that was a competitive conference championship match too tulsa's on the way up here 
Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, you got to, I, I was impressed with them last season. This is, uh, we don't have an RPI yet for men's soccer. The official RPI has not come out yet, but, they, but if they can get that result against Tulsa, pull them back, it does two things. I'm going to boost UP, uh, UCF's national ranking. Okay. Because you're beating a number five, number five or six, whatever team. And it pulls Tulsa back to the field in this, in the conference standings. And that's huge because I thought one of the big factors was UCF won the conference regular season title and got to host the championship uh, last year. I think that was huge. I think that's really going to be really big for their resume here because Tulsa's that much more competitive this year. So um, you got, you got to get every advantage that you can. So um, Tulsa, and then they have a week off. They go on the road to SMU next Saturday, but that's again, ESPN plus 6 PM Sunday. Um, be there or be square, man. That's going to be a huge one. Huge oh, it one. is a huge one. And I'll, and here's a, here's a big thing that I definitely, that I want to bring up for that game. Tulsa and UCF are tied for eight in scoring offense, which means that if they're relatively Ooh boy, a lot of scoring that, that means that the UCF defense is really going to have to play that play this time and, and play this time. And considering the what, considering how UCF's goalkeeping has been this season, I am a little concerned for that Tulsa game. Um, looking at the Memphis, back at the Memphis game, here's the reason that I think they lost that game is that Colin Welsh, the freshman goalkeeper for Memphis, had in himself a day. Seven, yeah, he was great. Uh, UCF shot the ball at him 16 times, seven on goal. He saved all set, he saved all seven of them. And then Memphis's offense just got extremely lucky. They Five got, shots on goal out of the six, but six shots they had. So I would just say that I that, but the thing is that Tulsa's goalkeeper is this has the second most saves in the conference. So I this is definitely going to be a test for UCF's offense, but I would be looking at the goalkeeping for the for in the game against Tulsa because I think that could be the difference maker. According to RPI update mensoccer.blogspot.com, which is the unofficial RPI tracker for men's soccer before it gets to the NCAA, right now UCF's RPI is uh, – oh, wait, no, that's not it. Uh, where is it? I don't see it. Why don't I see it? That's kind of weird. Oh, 102 right now. Um, Tulsa's RPI, care to guess? I, I'll, I'll put it in the top – 10 15 about second that's a huge huge opportunity oh boy, right there oh boy second yeah, that's gonna okay. that's gonna be a, now, that's gonna be a game ucf is 0-1 against the top uh top 25 that one loss was to virginia tech earlier this year they're 24th in the rpi um and don't forget ucf will get another shot at tulsa at tulsa to wrap the regular season but um yeah this is this is a tremendous opportunity. You want to get them at home because uh, you don't want to have to get them on the road if you can avoid it. So, um, yeah, this is going to be this is this is a big opportunity for Coach Calabrese's guys. All right. Let's talk a little golf here, um, Price. And I want to see, um, you know, because we had women's golf, uh, which I know you're excited about. Um one, the Evie Odom Invitational, uh, at, uh, which was held or hosted by Old Dominion in Virginia Beach, uh, their third top five finish in as many, um, uh, in as many tournaments that they played. Um, and, uh, hey, congrats to, uh, congrats to the Nice because they got, if you look at the team leaderboard, they were really outstanding, uh, finished at one over par as a team. 
Uh, the uh, player stats, um, looking them up right now. I, I, did I, I, okay, here it is. Um, Pat Pidden led UCF um, with uh, and won the individual medalist uh, with a uh, two with a total two hundred score. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, Jess Baker finished tied for sixteenth. Uh, Camille Banze uh, finished in eighteenth, and Zoe Allow finished tied for twenty. So that's uh, your five players, four top twenties. That's really good. Oh, yes, for sure. I also have to really commend Jess, uh, Jess Baker for rebounding in round three. She shot um, she shot one over par in the first two rounds and then shot three under in the or it is. Par, oh, no, it's par 70. I'm sorry. It's a three. So three over in the first two rounds and mm-hmm. then shot three under in the last round. She she catapulted 21 individual spots in the in the last round. And I think that and that really helped the UCF get the team, get the team win, which they got of which they got by seven strokes over the College of Charleston. By the way, speaking of scores, uh, the t- UCF's team score, they scored a total of 841 on the, on the, on the tournament. That is is the that good? Low, that is the lowest 54-hole total in program history. The last time UCF has gotten anywhere remotely close to that was 2014. That's pretty good. The, second, the now second place, is it was an 843 score in October 2014. So almost almost exactly now, seven years ago. Yeah, that's not relative to par though, but that's still no, oh no, it good. is. It was a par 70. Oh, it was okay. It was a par 70. Um, yeah. Now we now, don't oh, know what oh, the Oh Anton Rada Pitten. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh we don't know what the team rankings are right now because the golf stat rankings for the women don't come out until November 17th, but I would suspect. That UCF would probably their rankings should probably be quite healthy. We're just going to have to file that away in our back pocket for the next oh, yeah. month plus a week until we see those golf stat rankings come out. But oh yeah, that's especially good when news. we have Tenrata Pitten because um, yeah. I also want to give kudos to her. Not only did she win the tournament by five strokes, which prop you know props to her that was great. She got a hole in one on hole seven in the last round. Another great. Uh, this, is a, this is a weekend of her life. Her 200, <laughs> also her 54 hole score, 200 is the lowest 54 in the whole individual score in UCF history. Three strokes ahead of Elizabeth Moon in uh, also from from all from uh, on October, early October in 2018. So three yeah. years ago, three years ago when Elizabeth with Elizabeth Moon. So Tenrata uh, Pitten already has. The, sing- the, the single season average record is 71.9. She's currently beating it right now. She's so, a star, man. And then Tarada Pitten is also the, now the fourth UCF uh, women's golf player ever to get an individual to get an individual victory, joining Kristen Putnam, Liz Early, and Ashley Holder, who Eric and I both mentioned in the UCF Hall of, Hall of Fame live, st- live, live stream. So Tenrata Pitten is having herself a season right a season right now, and I think she's definitely one to watch on this team going forward. What a star, man. I love it. Emily Marin, keep killing it. Hey, she told us to follow the women's golf Twitter account. I think I think the UCF fans have a really Get good on that, guys. Everybody. UCF underscore W got you know why they did it? so I don't know why this was initially, but um there used to be just one UCF golf account. It was just UCF underscore golf, and it followed both the men's and the women's. They've since split those accounts, but they turned the original account into the men's golf account, which is UCF underscore M golf. And then they created a new account for UCF women's golf, UCF underscore W golf. So guys follow 
UCF underscore W golf right now on Twitter, please. They deserve it. This team's kicking it this year. They are, they are wrecking everything in sight. Last thing we'll talk about Bryce. The basketball schedules are officially out. Um, you can check them all out on ESP or ESPN on, uh, well, yeah, they're probably on ESPN, but they're on UCFathletics.com. The women's basketball season starts Tuesday, November the 9th, 6 p.m. at home against Duquesne. That following Friday, they play Tennessee at home. Um, home games also against Belmont, Arkansas, four straight on the road. Yikes. And then they play, uh, and then they start conference play exactly a month after their last home non-conference game on January 2nd. That's a Sunday against Temple. Uh, In addition, uh, men's basketball starts their season the day after women's starts theirs, which is Wednesday, November the 10th. They start with Robert Morris. Home games against Jacksonville, Oklahoma, Bethune-Cookman, North Carolina A&T. A a neutral site game against Florida State. Home for North Alabama. Home for Michigan the day before New Year's Eve, December 30th. And they start conference play at, at SMU on January 2nd. That's also a Sunday Home conference opener, January 5th, Wednesday against Temple. So impressions of the schedule right now, Bryson, because we thought this was, we thought it would be strong coming. We were getting, you know, some things kind of trickling out. Eric was doing a good job of following that, but um, now it's officially out. I think the men's schedule is freaking brutal, man. This is going to be a, this is going to be a tough schedule, but with a consistent team, um, I think this is going to be pretty solid. Oh yes, um, me, um, the, with the women's basketball schedule, I would really want to keep an eye on that brutal four-game road stretch because going against Mercer, C- Seton Hall, Iowa, and Prince and Princeton, I, I would say that especially with Iowa, who made the Sweet Sixteen last year in in the mm-hmm. in the NCAA women's basketball tournament, that is a very hard stretch, especially with the fact that you had uh, Mercer, Seton Hall, and Iowa all within a single week. Yeah. But so what a weird road trip because they go to brutal. and what a weird road trip because they go to they go to Macon, Georgia to play Mercer. Then they go to to New Jersey to play Seton Hall, out to Iowa, and then back to New Jersey to play Princeton before they come well, home. Well, the big thing with normally that you would one, see those New Jersey dates back to back to cut down on travel. True. But the thing I think the thing with that one is is that the, I think the good news is is that is that the, the gap between Iowa and Princeton is very sizable. Like yeah, it's an eleven, 11 day, day eleven gap. days, which you you need eleven days rest after a yeah. week like that. After after three games in six days at Mercer, at Seton Hall, at Iowa, especially capping off Iowa at Carver Hawkeye Arena. That's a good point. So yeah, so uh, that's definitely one to watch. Uh, I also would also I I also would want to watch the games against a game against Belmont. Belmont always has a really good basketball program on the women side uh tennessee certainly a story a story program great to have them here at the bounce house and that should be a very great game a great game to watch put some butts in seats which would be really good uh and then of course the cancun challenge i mean you know playing going i i think the fact that they're playing it on thanksgiving i think is going to be very interesting usc has always been a good basketball program and then they could play idaho state as well but you know traveling for thanks for thanksgiving certainly will be a very interesting thing for them to face especially traveling internationally so that will also be a very good ter- uh, one to watch as well. And what you said, and then as far as the men goes, yeah, I agree with I agree with what you said there. Great, just, just great scheduling on Coach Johnny Dawkins's part, and I am very interested to see how he will proceed with the men's basketball program going forward. 
Yeah, that's uh, we'll break down the schedule a little bit more. One of the interesting things I think about the schedule this this year, did you notice we're playing where our conference opener is actually on the road? Forgive me. I thought it was at the start of January because like, you know, New Year's start conference play, right? No. Conference opener is December 15th. That's a Wednesday night at Temple, 7 p.m. Now, that's a to me that as a as a history guy, that that's a callback to um, the old A Sundays. We used to have in the A Sundays, we used to have a conference weekend in December and like early December, like a little conference preview week, like a little taste, right? Before you jumped back into non-conference play and then conference play restarts again the rest of the way in the new year. So I'm interested to see why they did that. That's, that was their last, that's their last tune up before Florida state, which is three days later. Um, I like the fact that they have North Alabama at home Wednesday, December 22nd, three days before Christmas. Then you got the Christmas break five days after Christmas, Thursday, December the 30th, which is eight days after North Alabama, you're home to play Michigan. So you should be well-rested right before that Michigan game. And then that's your conference non-conference finale before you restart conference play after new year's at SMU. So that's, oh, yes. I, I, that's going to be a good, I think where that, where that game showed up in the schedule is a good gauge for where you are heading into conference season. I agree with that. This is a very, I would say this is a very balanced schedule for Johnny Dawkins. I mean, we just talked about how you had those really long road trips for on the women's side, which I understand why you schedule those. But mm-hmm. in, in the case of this, you don't see really much of anything that extreme in the in this in fact we have some pretty good home stretches as well we have three straight home games with temple tulsa and memphis to open conference play in earnest or in oh to open conference play in earnest after you started an away game at smu yeah um you um as far as um the non-conference i would um i would we have they have evansville at, at home i've seen evansville pop up in the um, ncaa tournament once or twice and so while the, uh, and so I would definitely, I think that's the aces match to have. And then, um, and look then for the Evansville aces and then, and then I, I look, I, look, I always just college basketball. If there's co- if one thing, if one thing that college basketball is known for it's upsets. And I do not want to see that happen. And I think that, and uh, Evansville, I maybe could do it. I hope they don't, but there's that. Um, and then also what a, ma- a matchup that's looking very interesting to me is a neutral site match with Florida State in Sunrise, Florida, in the BB&T Center. Mm-hmm. Yep, down in Sunrise. That's going to be that big Orange Bowl Classic match. So, uh, all right. Last thing I want to wrap up with is actually late-breaking uh, tennis. All right, so UCF's individuals and some doubles teams are competing in the ITA All-American Championships. Uh, this is being held in uh, the uh, South Carolina, uh, or the women are, be- are playing in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. The men are playing, it's hosted by Tulsa. And we got some late updates too, um, uh, Bryce. And I'm going to see if we can pull these together here real quick because uh, it, it's, it, this is kind of like, uh, this ITA All-American is kind of like a, it's, it's kind of like a major, right? For, for college tennis. And it's, it's the big tune-up before they start, they officially start the, the dual match season in the spring. So I want to start with the women's side. What, what results have we seen from, uh, from UCF so far in this, uh, in this women's bracket? So we have two women's, uh, two women's single players in the All-American Championships. We ha- uh, first off, we have, uh, we have number 80, Brent Levashova 
Uh, she uh, lost her first, unfortunately lost her first qualifying match. She was in the qualifying draw. Uh, she So she is competing now in the qualifying constellation bracket. She'll be facing against Utah's Madeline Lemoreau for that. Um, so, the, so, so um, uh, you know, good luck to her for the rest of the week. I hope she gets some good wins under her belt. The one, to, but the big one to watch is going to be Valeria Saleva because breaking news from breaking news because she just won her first uh, single, uh, her, her first round match in the main draw. Levashova was in the qualifying draw. Zaleva was locked into the main draw already, mm-hmm. and she just beat Washington senior Vanessa Wong in three sets. She lost the first set six two, but then she rebounded to win the second set six four, and then the third set six one. Uh, she is ranked, I believe, in the top 20, if I'm not mistaken, or somewhere close to that. So Zaleva will certainly be somebody to watch in the in the main bracket going forward in the women's in the women's single side. So that's something to follow for that. All right. What about on the men's side? Because Trey Hildebrand was in there. Um, I think he had a match today. To, uh, to, we're recording this on Wednesday, October 6th. Wasn't Trey playing today, too? Uh, he's playing twice today, actually. Um, he, oh, geez, busy day he, for him. Oh, for sure. He, um, for sure. He, um, um, so as far as the, he's playing as a single, I believe he is the only men's tennis player remaining now, both he and Bogd and his, uh, doubles playing partner, Bogdan Pavel, both made it to the main draw, uh, to the main draw, but Bogdan Pavel lost in his, in his first round match. So mm-hmm. we're so that means that Hildebrand is the last one st- is the last one standing Actually, there. He's and forgive both- me, we just have to find. I, I have to uh, update you on that too. This is just a few minutes ago. Uh, Trey fell in the main draw to number twenty-seven. Uh, his name is. They just have his last name, Braska of Mississippi State, six one six three. Yes, uh, uh, which ooh. is a bummer. That is a, that is a bummer. And now with Bogdan out, uh, Bogdan out in the singles, if I recall correctly, um, I believe you can yeah, double check to, I'm that. Trying to pull up this, I'm trying to pull up this bracket. I'm just, I, uh, the, I have I the bracket. Even. I have. Oh, the you bracket. got the bracket? Okay, because I, I have the bracket. It's complicated. I don't think they've even put the names <laughs> of the winners on there yet. Um, and um, uh, okay, I got to complain a little bit about the it uh, about the ita or uh, the no no not no. the no the, the the way this brackets work a little bit because the women's singles bracket I can't even find that. So that um so but as far as that uh but as far as the men's go, Hildebrand falls. Bogdan fell in the uh, in the first round earlier, if I remember right. So that means that of uh, the last hope for UCF men's tennis in the in men's tennis in the ITA All Americans comes from our trusty doubles duo of Pavel and Hildebrand. So uh, it'll be interesting because Hildebrand is pl- again again he played earlier. Florian Braska, by the way, is the name of the guy. I, I want to get his first name in there. Florian anyway, Braska, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So um so th- th- in in any case um so Hildebrand fell in the singles. He's gonna have to get rest pretty quick. Because he is going, he's also going to be playing on today. As we're recording this, he's going to be playing in a few hours again, a, a few hours in the doubles match with Bogdan Pavel against Texas duo Harper and and Ciamara, I want to say that. Yeah. Uh, Bogdan Pavel are the number one seed in the men's. Du- in well, the men's are, are we are we sure about that? Because I'm looking at the bracket and it says that in the round of 32, it's like one faces two and then three faces four so i'm not sure if they're the number um, I, one i don't know seed, I, that's they? how i'm just reading the bracket so if you want to yeah like, I, I i don't think they're the number one seed per se i could be wrong but i mean I, they have I, a, I don't, 
they have a name because normally they would be like it would be one versus 32 i think but they the way i think this is just a quirk of the of how they're displaying the bracket on the website oh, where it's like I think one they have versus seeds, two three versus four they have the seeds next to the school name i think is what it is because you notice that the, because um they have numbers next to the school names for example the one yeah, the yeah, yeah, draw, yeah they yeah. have q's next to them so i and at uh, the text and the texas duo has ll next to them which i believe stands for lucky loser which i've seen I think, oh yeah, and and okay, on the other side of the bracket, Rodriguez and Thompson for South Carolina have a two next to them. Yes. Okay, so, so wow, so so Pavel and Hildebrand are the number one seed. Holy yes, smokes. they are. Okay. So they're going to be going against. Right. The, yeah, so they're going to be going against the lucky the lucky loser pairing from Texas, who I guess made it from the qualifying draw mm-hmm. through that met- metric and metric, and they are uh, and honestly. You know, they're nationally ra- a nationally ranked duo. I think I've seen them rank number three nationally. And so I would say of the men, of the men's tennis, uh, men, men's tennis players, it's these two together that have been a highlight for this program. And we'll de- I think we'll definitely be ones to watch like we want follow Gabe DeCamps in, in the spring. Okay. All right. So excellent stuff. And then one last one, little note. Don't want to forget them, but they deserve because they deserve a shout out. Cross country, they won their home event, the UCF invite uh, with a uh, over Florida, Jacksonville, FAU, Stetson, FIU, Lynn, a bunch of Florida schools. Um, top individual finisher is your girl Bryson Valerie Lastra. Once again, sixteen fifty seven in the two point in the two point nine in the three k really. Uh, 2.9 mile or two point nine mile, right? Yeah. Yep, that's what it, that is what it that is what it says. Um, I will. Ambry Smith um, finished in six, one spot behind her. They they were separated by eight tenths of a second. So that I have was, to imagine that was they were running together. I have to imagine they were running together yeah. most likely. They're both fresh. They're both freshmen. And I know I've been gushing about Valerie about Valerie Lasher this whole time, but quietly, um, you know, we've seen Cambry, uh, other freshmen, Cambry Smith and Lillian Holtery as well, who Holtery mm-hmm. placed 11th with a 1721. And Charlotte Crook also, who, who came on last year, finished 12th too. Oh, so. yes. Um, she's uh, one of the definitely, I would say, one of the leaders in this program, being one of the only upperclassmen. There are so many freshmen on this cross-country yeah. team. It's insane. And, and seven runners in the top 16, more than oh, anybody yeah. else. That's what gave UCF the win. Oh, for sure. Especially um, because they are coming off of the floor of a, of the of their term, Mountain Dew Invitational in Florida. So it was great that that UCF won on their home turf, especially against Florida. Uh, Florida, who had runners finishing in second and third. So, um, but yeah, I think honestly, with this cross country team, I think the biggest thing is they they held their own home turf, home turf, which I'm very excited about for them to, to do. But also, just this youth on this cross country team is really is really impressing me. And then, of course, even Charlotte Crook, who came on last year, and she's an upper, she's one of the only upperclassmen, and she's performing very well as well. But uh, but youth wise. You know, Valerie Lastra, Cambry Smith, Lillian Holtery. I mean, especially with Lastra, who uh, who could who has already been setting records and is setting records and already getting Emory Blaney comparisons. Um, I, I'm excited to see what this cross country program is going to be capable of, not just this season, but over the next four seasons. I mean, if, I mean, if we've been talked about Renaya Jones in the track in the track season, I would say that Valerie Lastra is Valerie Lastra has the potential to be a Renaya level player for hmm. the for distance running it's the that's high praise that's high praise all right bryson i'm gonna hold you to that mark down the date and time you said that all right that <laughs> is gonna wrap it for us bryson thank you so much for that recap you can follow bryson at it's bryson turner following all the latest in ucf's olympic sports action you can follow us individually 
Uh, I am at Jeff underscore Sharon. Eric is at Eric Lopez Elo. Drew is at Stat Boy Drew. You can follow us collectively at UCF underscore Banneret. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash black and gold banneret. Uh, and of course, you can subscribe to our podcast if you don't already on Apple Podcasts. If you're an uh, if you're a, a iOS user, on the other hand, if you're an Android user, you can follow us on Spotify. Subscribe to us there, uh, or wherever you get your uh, devices. Special thanks to Afia Charles Wilson for joining us. Congratulations to her and all the Hall of Fame uh, inductees for this weekend, of course. Um, but there's w- uh, two people that we want to say a very special thank you to as we wrap up here. Um, I want to say a special thank you to Danny Medina, who uh, announced this past week that she will no longer be writing for us uh, at Black and Gold Banner. She's up in Nashville um, working for um, USA Today and the Gannett Network. And it's her, it's, and uh, all of you guys know Danny from Twitter. Um, I feel personally extremely lucky to have worked with Danny in the short time that she was a part of us at Black and Gold Banner. She, she made a tremendous impact to all of us. And Danny, thank you so much. Best of luck. Stay in touch. And uh, we're eternally grateful for you and everything you did. And especially, and I also want to say a special, a very special thank you to our friend Jeremy Brenner, who also is moving on to greener pastures. He's actually not going to be leaving the uh, UCF bubble too much. He's actually, uh, uh, he'll be sticking around. I'll be letting, I'll let him actually uh, tell you where he's going to be going, but he won't be going far away. Jeremy came on when we joined SB Nation um, and it's just, uh, he, I, I swear he's like, he's got like, he's one of like triplets that like, we don't, the other two, we don't know about or don't see because this man writes for something like six different sites, um, is a phenomenal producer, uh, is a brilliant writer, knows content in and out and really helped us from transition well from the independent blog that we were to an SB Nation site. Uh, he has great news sense, amazing on social media, and has helped me navigate the last couple of years so much. And, you know, has always tried new, th- you know, has been always willing to put up with my flights of fancy and trying new things. And, um, you know, I'm, I feel very lucky to have worked with him the last few years, Blue Black and Gold Banner. And Jeremy, I just want you to know, congratulations on everything you've done. Thank you so much for everything that you did for me. And for us, I'm so proud of you. And uh, I'm going to miss you in our uh, in our chats as always. But you deserve every bit of success that's coming to you because you're a fantastic reporter, a fantastic producer. Best of luck to you in all your endeavors and never stray too far. In fact, I won't let you stray too far. I'm really happy for you. Go ahead, Bryson. That, uh, that goes ditto for me. I just wanted to say my quick piece about a piece. I, I, I was brought on in April and I could not have felt more welcome by the staff, which includes Jeremy and Danny. I'm going to miss their game day guides. That was yep. uh, Danny that um, Danny re- also recently graduated from the Nicholas from UCF, from UCF journalism program of which I am a part of right now. So felt a little bit of a kindred spirit there with her since she's on the young side with me. So, uh, but she's off to greener pastures and uh, I wish the best of luck to her as well. And then Jeremy, and then Jeremy, I hosted night shift with him after the Bethune, after the Bethune Cookman game, and I just want to, so I just want to say it was a great to do that with him. 
and also for him to do that for putting together the Knights of the Round Table, which has been a very fun yeah. thing to write, very fun thing to write for. So, uh, I, you know, I know we, I didn't know I wasn't on the staff with either of them long, but I appreciate everything they've done. And I'm very excited to see what they'll be doing, what they'll be doing next. And I'm especially thankful for the two of them. I'm going to be very sad that they won't be with us actively anymore. Um, but I'm really so happy that I got the chance to work with both of them because they're so brilliant. So Jeremy, Danny, I know you guys have always been uh, very close friends uh, and I am so thankful for the two of you. Best of luck going forward and stay in touch. All right. So for all of us here at Black and Gold Banner, I'm Jeff Sharon saying thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Enjoy the ECU game. Charge on.